And so are Vince and Sasha. And we're going to talk about all of that today and more. And joining me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. He brings his own balls to drop in Times Square every New Year's Eve. The great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again, dropping my balls all over the wrestling media, all over the wrestling news, all over the fans. I don't know who. <laughs> here in 2023 once again. Brian Teabag last with the reporting. You're, you've been covering a variety of the the business beats over the past couple of days. The people may know, I'm sure they have probably heard that we, even though this is the first official experience, we of course did your show a few days ago, the drive through, but we've also emanated and disseminated some breaking news updates on the status of the wwe and everybody's heads being on fire because vince is back and bigger than ever and uh apparently he's learned a new hole too because he made three members of the board tap out instantly maybe it was the cobra clutch he learned from sergeant slaughter anyway we dropped these the breaking news update about vince well, 24 hours ago, we recorded it. I don't know where we are anymore, but how, if the people have somehow missed that to start 2023, how can they find the breaking news? You can hear the Vince McMahon. Breaking news audio. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, look for the Jim Cornette Experience feed. It's bonus episode one, Vince Returns, or on the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel, it's up there right now with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork. Check that out today. And once again, what is that tune that, that just played when you say the words Vince McMahon? That's the official Vince McMahon breaking news theme now. So you'll know when you hear that, it's like an air raid siren. You'll know they're incoming. That's the sound coming out of William Regal's ears right now. <laughs> Can can somebody animate a picture of William Regal turning around and doing the face like the angry muskrat or whatever that fucking furry little animal was? All right. But anyway, the angry so, muskrat? The angry What was it, a squirrel or a mouse, rat, <laughs> possum, opossum? I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, you've seen that. It's a meme, <laughs> like the kids say. It's a meme of the uh, the angry animal that spun around to that tune and gave a mean face, and it was all over the place. I just can't remember what exactly the furry little friend was, what species that is. Nevertheless, before people think we're going to be silly about this, no, we're actually we're covering this beat. As a matter of fact, today's main event, lights out portion of the Jim Cornette experience is we're going to wait until the end of the show. And then we're going to peruse the interwebs and the various net sheets 
and we're going to uh, uh, see if there's any new Vince news to add to what we've already uh, collated since yesterday when we did the breaking news update. J.P. Morgan is involved, just as a tease, the giant financial giant, J.P. Morgan, Sports Illustrated. <laughs> Are you the source at Sports Illustrated, Brian? You speculated and ruminated on something on the breaking news update that we recorded yesterday, and at about the same time it came out, Sports Illustrated was reporting the Saudis may potentially be entered. We, we've got Vince updates already. We're going to save it to the end of the program and then see what else has come out, who else has jumped out the fourth floor window of Titan Tower, and we'll do that as the lights out portion of the program at the end today. Because it's my show, and I'm, I'm back, baby! 2023 is going to be a big year. We're going to have a nice conversation here, Brian, if you don't interrupt me too much. All righty. How's your new year going so far, though? Let's not... <laughs> it's going all right. It's going all right. I was about to say, let's not just talk about me. Let's talk about you. But I see your new year is... Probably going well anyway. I'm having a good time. I'm having a good time. There's lots to do. There's lots of uh, recording. There's lots of behind-the-scenes stuff. And, of course, there's Lego to build and shows to watch. And baseball's coming up right around the corner. I'm very excited. Wait a minute. I thought, well, I guess they can't be playing baseball this time of year. They end up about the end of October, don't they? Well, lately they go into November with the World Series. But then spring training will start up pretty soon. And then the season will start by the beginning of April. and. We're off and running. I remember every time. 162 games. 162 games of storylines, short-term storylines, long-term storylines, season-long or multiple-season storylines. Baseball is the best. If you're into wrestling for the things that made wrestling great, baseball's the best. Well, then who are their bookers? Well, they have general managers. They have good general managers. And then there's, you know, some guys that were talented in other things and you think they'd be good general managers and they suck so when the general managers get together are they the ones that that get together at, at the start and call the the finish on the games no there's they, no there's no finish on the games the games are not predetermined well you were talking about storylines and long-term angles and issues so i figure all the general managers get together and they figure out how but how can they work it Sometimes the guy just might drop the ball or miss the ball. How can they work at that precisely? Or do they just try to get an estimate out there? Well, they don't work it. You can't work baseball. The hardest thing to do in sports is to hit a baseball. Oh, hey, don't tell Vince McMahon you can't work baseball. You'll have the extreme baseball league. If that will distract him from ruining wrestling, let's try that. <laughs> you know what? I like the steroid era of baseball. I'm all for Vince McMahon's baseball vision. I'll help him. It'll be a home run. All the I players on the what. gas, everyone's gigantic, everyone's hitting home runs off the wall. It'd be great. And there's Vince just thinking, if I could only get to third base with the paralegal. That's what he should do. You think when he, when he goes to the board meeting, he should walk in with women on each arm? Like oh flare, my god! Like oh flare in eighty nine. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and 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 they play his music. No chance. That's what you got. And he busts open the door, and he's got two strippers on each arm, and a fucking a, a, a pin on his lapel that says "fuck you, Linda." And there he and and he takes over the whole thing and. That's the and move. Then it, when are we going to hear and then he had, Wait a minute. He could introduce... I'll, I'll preface a, another story we're going to talk about today. He could introduce his new 
head of talent relations, Dana White. <laughs> All right. Before the, the, we get the, the the the, you know, the timing's perfect. Look at what Dana did. <laughs> no one will notice. We we're, we got to catch up. First of all, before we can talk about the wrestling, we got to catch up with the important part of this program, which is all the people, the cult of Cornette, the listeners, the people out there, the things that have been going on. We, we've taken a couple of weeks off where we haven't been able to recognize people or acknowledge things or emails, whatever the fuck. Real quick, thank you, by the way. John Fell in Baltimore got me one of the greatest Christmas presents that I've ever had and actually spent in terms of financially almost no money, but the creativity and the the thoughtfulness, as they say, that he put into it, because he lives in Baltimore, right? Is it porn? Guess what he got me? Porn. Porn from Baltimore? Porn from Baltimore with crabs, with seafood. No, no, wait a minute. I didn't know which way you were going with the crabs. Starring Led Zeppelin. No, it's uh Corn and crabs and seafood. Well, those are my first two guesses. That, that was a mud shark, wasn't it? A mud show. Those are my first two but, guesses. Porn and no, seafood. No, no goddammit, no, no, no. Comic books. No, which just what does that have to do with Baltimore? I'm thinking about the participants, you and that dirty John Fell. No, he, oh, come on. He, he actually, he went through a program and he doesn't do that stuff anymore. <laughs> he doesn't do what, what stuff? What program? Well, what you're through? trying to just inseminate there that, no, just listen to me. You're, John's a married man. It has children with a variety of different people. There's no way. To, so just listen to me for a second. Okay. Okay. No, he went down there to little Italy is what he did. You sorry, sack of snake feces. He went down there to little Italy to Sabatino's and he, he got one of their souvenir. They actually printed reprinted. I should say their original menu from when they opened in like 1950, whatever for their 50th anniversary. And he went down there and got me one of their original, and it's just like a menu. It's all laminated so you can wipe the Clams Casino off of it and everything. And it was the, it's of course the original menu and the original prices and the story of, oh, this is Sabatino's restaurant and blah, blah, blah. And he got the owner of Sabatino's who's actually the, I think the second generation in all those years, they've had, still had the second generation, I think still involved. He autographed the front of it for me. And he said, he said, John said that he had said nobody would ever asked him for his autograph before, but he remembers the, the guys at the NWA guys in the eighties. I don't know if it was a thing in the WWF or not to go to Sabatino's, but we've talked about, you know, Flair and the Horseman and us and the Crockett cup press conference and all those things that we were there at Sabatino's anytime we got a chance. And when we flew in and out with Crockett's plane, Flair would give old, Freddie Floyd, the uh, pilot, like $100, which back then would buy a banquet, and have him go and get all kinds of spaghetti and pasta and blah, 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 and bring it back on the plane if we didn't have time to go there. And the owner still remembers all those. Every time all the NWA guys would go in, they'd get to private. It wasn't even a private room. They just have all wrestlers in one room up the stairs and to the right back in that. So we didn't clash with the, uh, the, the civilians dining there and run them off or whatever. But anyway, I thank you, John fell for the 
menu from Sabatino's. And still nobody can make garlic bread anywhere in the world like that. Have you had Sabatino's garlic bread, Brian Lance? I've never had Sabatino's, no. How the fuck have you been to every major wrestling event in the history of man over the last however many years and not goddamn ever eaten at Sabatino's? Well, you know, after a while, after a wrestling show, you don't want to be around the wrestling weirdos, so you'll go somewhere else. Well, that was it. back in those days, the fans didn't go. The boys did. Yeah, I, I said wrestling weirdos. I was talking about the boys. Uh, <laughs> well, bop down there sometime <laughs> on a fucking Tuesday. Wear a baseball cap. Maybe send me a menu. Maybe if you send me a menu, I'll see what's something I well, want. <laughs> just order the garlic bread. It's It's a meal. You can eat the garlic bread for a meal. It is the softest and buttery and oiliest yet crunchiest yet garlickiest yet seasonedish type of thing i don't know what they do to it but it it melts in your mouth at it with a crunch at the same time and the garlicky seasoned goodness is beyond compare anyway speaking of people beyond compare <laughs> jacked up jeremy bagley who's another og cult of cornet member yeah guy. he's spearheaded good guy spearheaded an American Cancer Society fundraiser over the last uh, a month. Well, it ended in, at the end of December. We haven't been taping since then. And John Fell was involved in that. Rodney Esty, Lee Petrie, Stacy was publicizing it, etc. And they ended up raising over $3,500 in honor, Brian, of, of your dad and all the other people out there in the cult that have been affected by cancer in one way or the other in family, friends, etc. And that Jeremy, I tell you what, Jerry Lewis better move over because Jeremy is a fundraising machine. He, when he gets behind something and gives it all he's got, Captain, uh, I think they ought to have him do the, the big telethons from now. Do they even still do a muscular dystrophy telethon? I don't think so. Or at least I don't think it gets the time that it got. I don't think it gets 24 hours. Maybe it's like one hour on... UPN well, what the nine. fuck? What, what is that? What good is that? Just an hour. For the next hour, think about all the sick and crippled people. I don't know. I don't know what happens now anymore with that telethon. That's, uh, see, uh, people pan Jerry Lewis's movies, but at least he did some good there. As I remember when he'd come out about 21 hours or whatever, and it's 5 o'clock in the morning, and his fucking, he's wearing a tuxedo, but the tie is hanging around his neck untied, and his hair is disheveled. And his collar is open, and his shit's all wrinkled. He looks like he's been mugged in the fucking balcony. But he was still out there, baby. Lady! All right, anyway, um, I got a couple of emails also, real quick. No, now, come on now, don't be laughing. It's a serious I'm laughing at Jerry Lewis. I'm laughing at you doing a Jerry Lewis impersonation. Nobody else ever laughed at Jerry Lewis, so you ought to be the first. All right. Uh, Pete. From Birmingham, England. Um, now, I said Birmingham rather than Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, England, right? Uh, I just wanted to recognize, he sent an email um, saying that, you know, the holiday time of the year was hard because he had lost his dad in December of 2018. And now this past holiday season, his mother's had a couple of strokes and is, you know, not doing well. And he and his brother, Tim, have been listening to the shows to try to take their mind off of that, but uh, we just want to let you know, Pete and Tim, please take care of Mama. We hope she's feeling better, and 
Thank you for listening. And another, this actually was a mailed letter, not an email. So I had to rep from my old friend Jasper Tappenbutts up there in Delaware. Um, I get I get mail from Jasper every now and then. But um, he lost his father in May after what was a, a prolonged illness. But Mrs. Tappenbutts is expecting their second child in June. So I wanted to say congratulations, um, or even congratulations without the, the there. Uh, but congratulations, Jasper, on your new baby coming up this summer. We're sorry to hear about your dad, but thank you for all of the day-brightening things you send me in the mail. Some people actually still use the United States Postal Service for communication, Brian. You know that. I do. I'm one of those people. It's nice to get a handwritten little jotted note from time to time or whatever, even something typed if people took time to put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it. Nothing like, oh, this person has such nice handwriting. Wait a minute. They said, fuck you. What is this? Well, but at least it, it was in a, a nice and, you know, neat way. All right. Here is an email. I think we've got a champion. Because I said this on the program a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember when, at some point in December, was it Spotify, whoever these people are? I don't know how this program works, folks. You're, you're hearing me talk. The rest of it's out of my hands. But one of the podcast services, or whatever they are, assimilated all the data. Apparently, they're keeping an eye on us, folks. So you worry about the goddamn people in your walls from your local internet service provider, these people, are, they're keeping records right and left. But they sent out to everybody that subscribes to the podcast or whatever, or listens to them, how many minutes they spent listening to this, that, and the other thing, right? That's as close as I can get to a detailed explanation. But do you, understand, do you think the people know what I'm talking about? I think so. I think you're making it so much more complicated than it is, yes. Well, I don't know how this shit works. But apparently just unsolicited, these they just wrote you and said, hey, you spent 7,500 minutes listening to Dumbo Does It Donkey Style, whatever the case. Well, anyway, so I said a lot of people were writing in saying they listened to us for this many thousand, this many tens of thousands of minutes. And I said, how? I wonder what the record is. Send us your, send out your dead and send us your notes on how long you listen to the show. So apparently we, I think we have a winner. I want to challenge anybody to beat this. Uh, Mason from Brighton, Michigan. Uh, and also we've heard from Mason before because his father had passed away in March. He'd had a heart attack just after, remember we talked about the guy that had beaten cancer three times and then finally passed away from a heart attack. And so what a tough son of a gun he was. Uh, but anyway, we recognized that email and talked about that then. But Mason is back now with good news. I'm sending this email to you because I heard you mention someone listing on Spotify for 68,000 minutes. Well, I seriously doubt anyone else could possibly have more time than me. I'm in the 0.1% of listeners to the Jim Cornette experience. I have 62,601 minutes listening to just the Jim Cornette experience, which equates to 43.47 days 
of consistent JCE playing. I know, Brian, it seems like you and I talk. I was going to say, how much for do we 43 record? days. <laughs> There may there may have been some element of, of wait a minute I can't believe they said that I got to go back and listen to it again but nevertheless he continues that doesn't take into account the other podcast I listen to which is Jim Cornette's Drive Through the only other podcast I listen to when counting the minutes listen to Jim Cornette's Drive Through on Spotify which by the way that is now with Brian Last. It was 61,242 minutes or 42.52 days. So, in summary. Because there's less when, fluff on the drive through than the experience, so he got... Yeah, yeah, there's a, the there's a whole fucking 23 hours and 12 minutes fucking less fluff over a period of six, whatever. When adding both podcasts together... The amount of minutes listened to between both in one year is 122,485, which is 85 days worth. If you do plan to have a contest, then I'm throwing down the gauntlet, and I'm confident as fuck that nobody will surpass 122,000 minutes between both the Jim Cornette experience and Jim Cornette's drive through Mason from Brighton, Michigan. Write those numbers down and uh, chisel them into a rock and bury them in the money pit on Oak Island because 122,485, that's the number to beat. What do you think about them apples? Get out of Michigan. Find something to do with your life. Oh, come on. He's, he's our, one of our most, obviously our most devoted listener. And you're I gonna, appreciate it, but cut down on some of the listening and let's maybe get wait, wait, what he's a multitasker. He's listening to us in his Raycon wireless earbuds, for example, while he is doing all the things he does. Let's say he might be a heart surgeon, and there's old Grandpa Jones laying on that table, and there is Mason from Brighton, Michigan, and he's got that scalpel and that retractor, and one of the nurses is dabbing his head, and that machine's going beep, 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 and the tubes are tubing and the blood's pumping. And he's a slicing and dicing. He's got that guy's chest cavity opened up like Vanessa Del Rio in a gangbang video. And there he is at the same time as he's doing God's work here, saving old Grandpa Jones from potential heart palpitations by doing whatever the fuck he's doing inside his chest. He is listening to the Jim Cornette Experience or Corny's drive through And you know, these maybe he's a brain surgeon. Maybe he's doing the same thing to the brain. Maybe he, somebody at the top of their head is opened up like a manhole cover on Broadway. And he's tinkering around in there in the medulla oblongata and, 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 and trying to figure out the gray matter from the brain matter. And he's listening to us to calm his nerves and steady his hands so that he can sew these people back upright and send them out there to pay the bill. You, you see, you can't just impugn this man's integrity or say he has nothing else better to do. He may be doing other things at the same time. Don't you think? I think I'm never going to get heart surgery in a Michigan hospital. If this is the kind of stuff that the doctors there are listening to. Have you never been to Brighton? I've been to Brighton Beach many, many, many times. Not in Michigan. Not Brighton, Michigan, no. No, well, they take what hospitals they can get up there. I'll tell you that right now. All right, I've got... Um, you love Jack Pfeffer stories, right? 
Yeah, you know what? It's so funny. Right before we went to air, you mentioned something about Jack Pfeffer, and he's been on my mind because I just ran into something in my files on him. So, yeah. Well, and I I talked, folks, to my good friend of the Fantastics, Bobby Fulton, who's made some other news lately, and we'll talk about that in a second. But for the purpose of this story, because this was Christmas week before this other development happened. And we obviously, we just tell old wrestling stories because we're old wrestling fans. And Bobby used to live outside of Charlotte in Kannapolis, North Carolina, and that was right down the road from China Grove, North Carolina, which is where Jackie Fargo had retired to. He was originally from the Carolinas, and that's where he had his his business, his place of business, as he used to call it, which was his gambling establishment not necessarily open to the general public, but everybody that needed to know knew. But anyway, so Bobby spent a lot of time with Fargo to hear old wrestling stories because we've talked about him many times on the program here, the fabulous Fargo's Jackie and Don main evented Madison Square Garden sold out against Rocca and Perez in the 50s and were the huge tag team stars of Tennessee that led to be getting over so strong, led to the fabulous ones, Lane and Kern being created in the eighties and their promoter and manager legitimately for a period of time, because Jackie Fargo popped up a lot of places as the world champion where Jack Pfeffer would go in, but the Fargos were managed and promoted by Jack Pfeffer around the country for some time. And occasionally they would travel with him and Jackie would tell the stories of having to, and for the folks briefly who don't know, Jack Pfeffer was a, a pioneer wrestling promoter. He had first worked as a younger man when he came over from Russia or wherever he had worked in the Russian ballet as a young man. Right. And in some, in the promotional end of it. Right. And then it came over and got affiliated with the early wrestling promoters, but he was a, oddball character he was responsible for one of the big exposés of the business in new york in the 30s when he felt like he was cut out and cheated by the other members of the trust and that was a he was a powerful figure in wrestling for decades either by being able to get into a successful operation and get guys over and get them loyal to him, or by then in unhappier times, as they used to say, going to different successful promoters and threatening to expose their business like he had before and kill it unless they booked his talent or did whatever he wanted. So anyway, so Fargo's telling Bobby that Pfeffer who was what, you know, not even five and a half feet tall, and people have described him in writing as looking like a crow. And he had the, at this point, the late 50s, the graying hair and the big nose and the kind of bad teeth. And you always see pictures of him. He's wearing a suit, but it's a suit from like the 30s or 40s, the like gangster movies. And because that he wore one suit. They said it never washed it, never laundered it, never dry cleaned it. Day after day, and he had the cigars, so it had the cigar burns and the ashes all over it. And they said, Fargo said, I've never heard this reported in any other historical publication. 
Fargo told Bobby that Pfeffer had some kind of big either growth or maybe it could have been a hernia down near his groin. <laughs> it I was never just, heard that before. I'd never either. But you would look at the guy and think anything's possible. And that combined with the fact that he wore the same suit every day and whatever the fuck, he had piss stains in the in the lap of his his suit. And it's got his, you know, meal dribblings. And he you've heard the story about the fingernail. He would keep one of his little pinky fingernails grown long and sharpened. And that was his nose picking finger. And they said you would sit there and watch it like he was a big, he would go into, you know, delis or stores or, you know, lunch counters or whatever. And he'd get things like he'd make a sandwich. Out of, he'd buy the bread and buy the bologna, and in the back seat, he'd spread it all out in his fucking lap with the cigar burns and the ashes and the piss stains, and he'd make a fucking bologna sandwich, and he'd say, here, Jakey, because it was Jakey and Danny. Here, Jakey, you got, you want a sandwich. You got to keep up your strength. No, okay. Or he'd have a jar of them dill pickles, and he'd take his nose-picking pinky nail and he'd stick it in a jar and pull out a fucking pickle and he'd say Yavanta Pico and they traveled with this fucking but he got them booked everywhere because so many promoters were scared to not just go along with Pfeffer and also the Fargo's a great team they came off sellouts in Madison Square Garden but he'd do all these publicity posters on his guys and blanket you know, territories, you've seen a bunch of the old ones and it was like I own a bunch of like the old if, ones. If, yeah. if Bob Luce if Bob Luce had good grammar, right? Then it would be a Jack Pepper promoted. They are sensational. You can hear it in his voice, right? But just off a sellout in Madison Square Garden. But anyway, Jack Pepper. The other day I was going through the files and some of the stuff in the Pfeffer file that I just loved. The Pfeffer file? The Pfeffer file. It was stuff that he had given to Ring, to uh, before it was the Ring's wrestling one. It was just the Ring magazine before they even had the wrestling offshoot, and it's all in his handwriting. So it's pictures of him with Ray Steele, him with Jim Londis. You talk about him in New York in the '30s, Jack Hurley, Rudy Miller, him. That was the height of New York for many, many yeah. years. That period of time. Well, yeah, when when they closed him out, he made sure of it. He killed it for yeah. almost fifteen years. For a long time, that's right. I mean. What was it? Gorgeous George and Vern Gagne couldn't do anything in the garden. It was, it was dark for 12 years from 39 to 51. But there's also pictures of him and he, it's in his handwriting. He claimed one of them was 1950. There's no way. <laughs> and it's when he's an old man and he claims he was the original Beatle because he has a Beatle oh, haircut. Yeah, that's... <laughs> and he claims that he invented the Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that picture. That was the old... He was so cheap, and that was in the old days, the, the bowl haircut. They did it with kids. They, uh, your mom would just turn a fucking mixing bowl over your head and just trim all around the fucking edges. It and has that, his notes, like, see, original Beatle, 1950, in locker room. <laughs> <laughs> well, because that, he was a publicity genius. He would, you know, figure out everybody had a gimmick. And remember, he's the one that, obviously, we've talked about for you listeners that did the rip off names instead of Bobo Brazil was Hobo Brazil, Bruno San Martino, Bummy Rogers. If he didn't have anybody with a budget behind him, he would go and he would promote complete fakes. And then when he'd find somebody that had a budget, 
he would do the opposite. He'd promote the real thing. It just so happened he was in wrestling because he is the classic old school New York entertainment hustler. He lived in the hotel. You know what I mean? Like that was his life. Yes, from hotel to hotel and on the road with either the guys. And you see all the letters that are reaped. Tim Hornbaker's got a bunch of them. He's got the Patreon. Everybody should check out. But the letters from guys, wrestlers across the country, reporting into him on how they're doing in the territory he got them booked in and or sending him, you know, 10% of the, you know, their money is the booking fee or whatever. And thank you, Jack. This is, you know, a great job, a great spot you got for me or whatever. But I remember there's one, was it a story in whatever happened to Gorgeous George or it's around there that Pfeffer at one point, because he's got the accent. And in those days, before email, obviously, or even before fax machines or, you know, copiers readily available or whatever, wrestling promoters would call the cards to a local promoter or to get posters printed or whatever they'd call them in. And that's why a lot of times on these old newspaper ads, you see such ridiculous spellings, right? Of the guy's names. And Pfeffer calls this guy a local promoter in some town. He's like, this week I got for you a brand new sensation, like Ivan Vladimakov. And the guy, well, how do you spell that? And he's like, V A L V L A D. Ah, fuck it. Don't book him. He just makes shit up as he went along. Vilma Snyder. V- Vilmer, Vilmer Snyder. You think you're getting Wilmer Snyder? All of a sudden, Vilmer Snyder's there. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so that's a, a Jack Pfeffer story from Jackie Fargo by way of Bobby Fulton. But we've got to make mention of this. And people got mad at Bobby. And for fuck's sake, he's a fucking recovered cancer patient, for God's sake. He doesn't live his life paying attention to everybody's scandals anymore. He just promotes Chillicothe. But Bobby oh, come on. And, his, and his son, well, he, he didn't know how bad people hate this guy. But Bobby and his son, Dylan for their big time you know wrestling big time collectibles they do signings they do those great shows up in Chillicothe draws a couple thousand people with a lot of the legends blah 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 but they just put up on i guess Facebook and on and Twitter hey, what well, we've booked for an upcoming signing John Laurinaitis i guess they maybe they were selling it his first post WWE appearance or whatever and everybody, universe, normally in a situation like this, it'd be like me, maybe. Somebody like me, I can see where half the people would say, oh, we can't wait to meet him. And half the people are like, we're bringing a pitchfork. But it wasn't half and half. It wasn't 70-30. It wasn't 80-20. It wasn't even 90-10. Everybody shit on this like they'd just eaten the goddamn Supreme at Taco Bell. And just universally on, I've never... Can you think of anybody that's ever, that has done anything over the last 20 years, Brian, that has been advertised to do an appearance and not nobody gave a fuck and everybody was against it? Oh, yeah, that Joey Ryan show in Knoxville that was going to happen. That, oh, oh, okay. For women's okay, charity. Sorry. For women's charity. For women's, even the women's charity called bullshit. Okay, there's one. Okay, J- Joey Ryan and John Laurinaitis are now the... The only people apparently in wrestling that are officially just completely fuck you, we don't want to see you. Let's talk about this for a second. And 
We can go past Bobby and Dylan, although they should have known better than this, and they should have expected I will, I will this reaction. Dylan, Dylan should be paying attention to the internet. I've, when I talk to Bobby, I know for a fact, yes, he he likes to see the boys, but he doesn't fucking live his life on the goddamn internet anymore watching the latest wrestling news and reactions to people after his health issues. But go ahead. But looking past that, if you're Laurinaitis, what the hell are you thinking? It's, it's time to get back out there and see the fans and meet some chicks. What are you thinking? Why is he doing this? He should know better. He should know this is going to happen. Well, I guess he knows now. Should he um, manage Teddy Hart? Come, I, you know, Teddy might fucking slip in with a, a 90-10. The dynamic ludes. <laughs> But that's the thing. I mean, everyone should have known this was a bad idea. And everyone should have known that no one was going to be enthusiastically, all right, Johnny Ace finally back on the circuit. No, he's one of those guys that everyone's like, please go away forever. Don't You know back. what? Actually, even before the scandal, do you think anybody wanted to meet him? Any of the fans? Give a shit. There's probably the, like- some geeky fan who wants to get his action figure signed from years ago. Of Does he have Johnny an action Ace? figure? Everyone does. He must. He must. <laughs> but here's the problem. How do you how do you make an action figure out of somebody that never had any action? <laughs> well, he had question. some action, but it was the wrong kind. I could go on, but I won't. But the point is, the upshot of this thing was they, they made this announcement, and everybody universally in the world shit on it, and they made the announcement, Bobby and Dilla, 24 hours later, well, okay, after nobody... Nobody liked this idea, so we've obviously reconsidered we will not be working with John. We've replaced him. We're now booking Jose Gonzalez into oh, uh, Ohio. Hey, you know what? At least he's he's doing kids' birthday parties in Puerto Rico, remember, as the conclusion of Dark Side of the Ring a couple years ago uh, revealed. But never maybe Laurinaitis can do some kids' birthday parties. Maybe the kids of all the paralegals. Anyway. Well, let's go from this to a good story about shit. Shall we? Yes, we shall. Because, because, well, here's the thing. You know, you have scoffed and mocked at my little pee song that I made up for Harley. When I take her, here we go, going out to pee. We We get the funniest looks from every squirrel we meet. Well, you've just, you've, you know, you've mocked it and you've made fun of it. So I've, over the... The holidays there, because we had the week of sub-zero freezing wind chill and in the week of abnormally in the 60s weather. So she was pooping in different places, depending on whether it was pouring rain or whether the snow had drifted too high. So she had to wander around. She took more time than normal, what I'm saying to you. So I made a new little poop song for her. Instead of the pee song you don't like, a new little poop song. Would you like to hear it? Here it goes. Oh, boy. Prissy little puppy princess posing and prancing in the yard. Turning in circles, twisting her booty, arching her pooper up to make the poop come out. She is a poopin'. She is a poopin'. She's gone poopy. Poop, 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 poop. What do you think? Do you think, considering the timing, if you hadn't gone into wrestling, you could have given Weird Al a run for his money? I believe I would have had a, a, a fucking shot. Taking popular songs had, and putting yes. poop or food-themed lyrics. And just shitting all over them. Just <laughs> taking a shit right off, literally, right <laughs> all over the top of them. 
Um, do you like Weird about, Al? Do you like Weird Al Yankovic? Well, it, I liked the the early hits and and the big ones, but the the catalog it it it's like pockets. The joke does get old if you listen to a bunch of them in a row. When they came out once every year or two, it was easier to navigate that. What about the movie UHF? God damn, I haven't seen that in 40 years. What was it? Help me. He gets a TV station and he puts on the kind of weird outsider programming That's that right. fools like us like, starring Stanley Spadowski, played by Michael Richards. Where is Michael Richards these days? Oh, he didn't make a full comeback after his... Uh... Tyrate on is the he stage. still alive, though? I mean, does he exist in the world? I believe the core four of Seinfeld are all still alive, yes. It seems like somehow he'd be out there trying to beg for forgiveness again, somehow. All right. Anyway, you didn't like the poop song. We'll move on. I got rid of there. We go. I got all these. I got here are the, the email from Ian from London. Remember, we talked about, and you were completely. I don't want to say ignorant. I would never call you ignorant, Brian. You were completely just fucking uninformed about the Cockney rhyming slang. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago? Right I before. wasn't completely uninformed. I was completely entertained by your version of it. Well, I, I wasn't doing too bad. But, but you, you obviously weren't conversant. Um, but Ian from London... Uh, sent us in a little information on this. And Adrian Street, when I was riding in the, in the car with Adrian and Linda, when I first got into business, he, he's not Cockney. His accent is completely different. And so it gave a different, even a different sound to some of this stuff because everybody's accent over there, I think, is so cool. But he's not Cockney, but because he'd been around the business and they used it in the business a lot at that point in time or back then, he was conversant in it. But basically, it's a rhyming slang, and according to Ian, who is a native Cockney himself, and a Cockney is defined as anyone born within earshot of the Bow Bells, one of the oldest churches in England. Apparently, uh, um, as long as you could hear the church bells ringing, you were a Cockney, and the accent came from that area. And uh, so would you like to hear some of the examples of how you can use Cockney rhyming slang? Let's hear it. Do you know what a Berkeley Hunt is? How dare you say that about her? Well, to use in a sentence, uh, Ian says, that bloke, or Vince Russo, is a right Berkeley Hunt, which means he's a cunt. Or, dog and bone. What's dog and bone? Uh, dog and bone? I don't know. Dog and bone is a phone. I called the geezer on the dog and bone. Okay, Adrian's favorite was, I'll knock you on your bottle and glass. Which obviously you can kind of pick up his ass, right? Drum and bass equals place and home. To use in a sentence, come around to my drum. I don't know what the fuck they got out of that. But see, a lot of this, you'd have to know. You'd have to be from the same place. What do you think pony and trap means? Uh, Big Daddy and a ring rat. No, pony and trap equals crap. To use in a sentence, that bloke talks a load of old pony. 
See, you'd never are know. These still these acti- are these still active or is this like, this is the way we used to speak years ago? Like, is this no, I'd, active I'd, I'd speak? Think, well, well, God, some, uh, Ian, would you weigh in again? But uh, he doesn't sound like he's goddamn in a rest home here. He's a a right chipper fellow in this email. He's using email. He's got to be living. What about Tom Tit? <laughs> what about Tom Tit? Tom Tit equals shit. After all of that food, I needed a Tom Tit. Adam and Eve. It seems unnecessarily difficult to speak this but way. But that's why nobody will know what the fuck you're saying. Just See, learn Pig Latin. All right. Adam and Eve is believe. I don't bloody Adam and Eve it. You can get it. Brown bread equals dead. That bloke was brown bread. Pen and ink equals stink. <laughs> north and south equals mouth. Are these Tell universal? Bloke to shut his north and mouth, north and south. Are these universal? As far as their use in the Cockney speaking world. Well, since the Cockney world basically is from where you can hear church bells, I don't think it's a goddamn large place. So po- possibly it could be universal, and then it came from there. See what I'm saying to you. And a butcher's hook is a look. I came to have a butcher's at the jam jar, which is a jam jar equals a car or automobile. I came to have a butcher's at the jam jar. I came to have a look at the car. And money in the UK also has Cockney slang. A pony is 25 pounds. 50 pounds is a bullseye. 100 pounds is a ton. And 500 pounds is a monkey. So if you were ringing up to make a bet on a horse, but the phone wasn't working, you would say, I tried to put a monkey on a horse, but the dog was knackered. Now, he does say it's sadly declining, but still around. We're apparently, both of us, you and I, Brian, are diamond geezers. What's that? Reliable and special people. We're diamond geezers. That doesn't rhyme. It. Okay, whatever. I don't. Well, I know. I, that's what they just say. Well, they didn't say have to. Say, I don't know. That's another thing they say that doesn't rhyme. That could be our tag team, the Diamond Geezers. Uh, I think I like that about as much as the Golden Lovers. And we'll talk about half of that golden shower that they took later on in the program. I, I should mention real briefly. Thank you guys for your patience. In uh, enduring that we closed the collectible store at jimcornette.com for the first eight days of the month while we did some restocking and some re-inventorying and things of that nature, refreshing. By the time you hear this or thereabouts, Monday, January the 9th, the Cornette's collectible store will be reopened at jimcornette.com with the lazy booking t-shirts that have been the hit of the holiday season, readily available, and also a warning. We are now down to under 100 of the raw debut action figure variants, less than 100 of them. So if you've been on the fence, now is your time so you don't get shut out because we're not redoing those. And uh, otherwise, everything is available now. That you would wear the Cornette face shirts, the behind the curtain graphic novels, the pictures, the cult of Cornette certificates, DVDs, 
lube and more all available at jimcornette.com as long as it's Monday, January 9th or after. And the big news that I revealed on the drive-thru, Brian, the, the I'm coming back to Cameo, baby. It's been a year. This is the one-year anniversary coming up since we've had time to do the Cameos. Me and Hotchkiss, we both got so busy. And for the new listeners, Cameos are, are personalized video messages. And as we did last year, we are offering the St. Valentine's Day Massa Cameos. This is the perfect gift, a personalized video message delivered right to your sweetie's phone or to your enemy's phone. Because I give your Valentine's either a kissin' or a cussin' on Valentine's Day. Uh, depending on your specifications, you can go to Cameo, C-A-M-E-O, Cameo.com, slash Jim Cornette, or just go to JimCornette.com and click on the Cameo button at the top of the page, and it'll take you there, same thing. They go on sale on Saturday, January 28th at noon Eastern Time. And we're we're limiting it to about 80, which is all we're going to be able to shoot that week. Because we do, as people know, drone on a bit on some of these. Uh, so we're going to hold it to 80 and by previous history, get in in the first few hours to make sure you get a spot. And it has been a year since we've offered these. But Saturday, January 28th at noon Eastern, St. Valentine's Day Massa Cameos on sale. And boy, I can't wait. And give me, here's one thing. Brian, you know I mentioned this to you the last time we did these. Give me something to work with, people. Now, I know there's not room where you can write a book. Get to the point. Be succinct. Give me bullet points. But don't just say, cut a promo on my boyfriend. I got no picture. I've never met him. I've never talked to him. I got no reference. But is he fat? Is he skinny? Is he tall? Is he short? Is he impotent? Is he not? What the fuck's going on with this guy? Give me something to hang my hat on to whoever the victim or the recipient is so that I can give them either the verbal filleting or the tongue lashing that they so richly deserve. Details, people. It's all in the details. Speaking of details, are you still there? Am I? I don't know. It, 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 I was having a good time, and then I realized, ah, oh, shit, you're still around, aren't you? I was having a good time as a listener, and then I was like, fuck, I got to be a part of this. Well, you get, you got to be a part of this. I'll tell you who doesn't want to be a part of something. Uh, apparently, Turner Broadcasting may be having second thoughts, and not this is not going where you think it is, folks. It's not even about the wrestling program over there. Did you hear about... I... I want to say this is one of the most hilarious things I've ever heard of, and at the same time, it's not something we should joke about or make fun of. It's sort of like the George Carlin routine where he said, you know, people say that it's just under no circumstances can you joke about rape. Well, imagine Porky Pig raping Elmer Fudd. So I will just, I'll deliver the details. I don't know if it's ironic, the phrase here. People will understand what I'm going for in a second. Dana White, the originator and founder, and it's, well, not the originator, but the, and the founder, or the founder, but the no, former not, Neither guy, of those things. No. Neither of those things. The former head guy at the Ultimate Fighting Championships before they sold the, the thing to the, to the big corporate world, and he's still a bigwig. 
but he had a new television program coming out. And it was going to be on TBS, and the name of it was PSL, the Power Slap League. And the the theory behind the, or not the theory, but the sport of this, what they were going to do, and I've seen clips, and this is a shoot, people. I'm not making this up. They get whoever these fucking guys are that want to be involved in this, and they stand them up next to each other, in front of each other, and they take turns. And there's some rules to how long you've got or what the fuck. You can't just run from 20 feet or whatever. They just stand there, and they open hand slap each other as hard as they can in turn until somebody either quits, I guess, and gets knocked out, gives up, whatever the case. It almost like one of those strong style wrestling matches where they stand there and chop each other, except this is for a shoot to the to the side of the head and the face and can cause deafness and brain damage and you know broken cheekbones, eye sockets, whatever. And apparently there's some element of people that want to do this. Right, and they already have these kind of competitions, which he didn't come up with it. He j- he's just bringing it to television. So he got these knuckleheads slapping a piss out of each other, and the show was going to debut on TBS after AEW Dynamite. Right, Brian? That was the on the Wednesday night slot, right after Dynamite. Not I after believe Empire. so. I believe so because those commercials were airing nonstop. Yes, and. This was supposed to be, I think Dana White was thinking, well, like the Ultimate Fighter TV show came after Raw. I'll get the fucking power slap league. Like there's, again, a one note thing I would have to think after a while. I don't know if this would sustain viewers, but he'd think that would do the same thing, get the wrestling audience, whatever. And I guess the debut is going to be next week or whatever. And over, I think, was it New Year's weekend? It was the holidays, but it it came out on New Year's weekend. Whatever the case, there's video from a camera of somehow in a nightclub in a casino somewhere in Las Vegas. Maybe it was somebody's phone. and it, it, It didn't look like a security camera. It looked like somebody just videoing somebody because they know there's somebody famous near across fucking bar. And there's Dana White and his wife. And they're obviously not happy with each other because she's looking distraught and he's kind of standing there. And she turns around and she slaps him. And he turns around and slaps her back. Domestic violence is not something we should make mockery of. But how many, I'm just going to ask this question, Brian, and then I'll turn it over to you to try to take some of the heat off of me. How many other people ever accused of or witnessed doing domestic violence actually had a television show debuting on national cable within a week where the very fucking domestic violence that was going on in this video is the rules of the fucking sport? It is astounding. We brought up if Vince McMahon did baseball earlier, it would be like if he launched a baseball league and the day before he was on video just beating people up with a bat. With a baseball bat! What does it tell you 
that they didn't cancel the show. They've only well, announced that they've delayed it. They Well, here's the thing. I heard two things now. I heard that it was delayed for a week when... Where'd the video come out? Probably TMZ, right? That's where everything is. I think so. I think so. Hey, check your fucking colonoscopy videos, folks. They got a fucking way to record every camera ever. So your your fucking internal sphincter may be on TMZ next week. But they said they delayed it. And then I heard a follow-up saying that this basically this show is dead except for the, the paperwork hadn't been done yet. So I don't know if we're going to see it, but we'll, we'll see. But at the very least, it, it, <laughs> damn it. Here he is. The president of power slap, Dana White. <laughs> friends, I've and been practicing power slap, not just with my friends, but in bars with my wife for years. And I'm ready to bring this new sport to the world. Now, and let's be fair. Also, he came out and he said, and both of them apparently have said they were both drunk. And it was just, it was an unfortunate thing. It's never happened before. It's not something that goes on. And they both would like everybody to leave them alone. But goddamn. I mean, it just wouldn't have been so fucking ironic or whatever if he'd have kicked her in, the, in between the fucking legs like a goddamn field goal. It wouldn't have been so fucking... <laughs> Come up with an entire television show based around <laughs> slapping people. And... And then fucking both of them, it wasn't even hers, him slapping her, hers, she slapped him too. They're, they're, they're so, they're so slap happy whites. <laughs> Wait, say they, there's their fucking ring announcer, slappy white. Is he still around? Google slappy white. God damn it. This is more fun than I thought it was going to be. Is slappy white still alive? He can't be. He'd have to be 105. Slappy white died in. 1995. How old was he? He was born in 1921. Hold on. Okay, well, he'd be 174 when he died. He'd be 102, 1921. All right, well, Slappy came Megan. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, anyway, well, I'll tell you what, folks. If you'd like to make it, to your mailbox to pick up some. <laughs> well, I got, I just, I got sidetracked and it's time. If you'd like to make it all the way to your mailbox for one of the most awesome days of the month, one of the most exciting times, something you can look forward to, something you can mark on your calendar on the refrigerator, something you can, you can have that date tattooed on the back of your kid's neck. So every time you grab him by the scruff of the neck and say, go out to the mailbox, you can make sure it's the date that this box of awesome is going to come from Bespoke Post or Bespoke Post. We're still waiting for a, an, a, a, a phonetic pronunciation guide. But the box of awesome arrives once a month, and when you unbox this thing, you will find that every item involved in it and anything that comes out of a box gets over, but every unique item is hand curated, selected for you based on your interests from a small business that you probably would have never heard of otherwise. Now let's say there's some, there's some tinker. They still have tinkers, right? People work with their hands these days. It's not all mechanized. It's not all heartless cold machinery. Some people roll up their sleeves and they do work with their hands. And they either plow the fields and they farm or they get in there and they hammer and they chisel and they tinker. 
Mama Cornette used to say sometimes she didn't give a tinker's dam, so maybe they build dams. I don't know what tinkers do, but they handcraft things and they build them. And then Bespoke Post selects, curates them, if you will, and puts them in their boxes of awesome and they come to you. Whether it be cozy home essentials, travel must have, cocktail kits, knives, they got knives. Yeah. Protect yourself in, in case you're Watch not, out. The other people in the house may be plotting against you and you need to carry something at all times. Get some of these knives. But whatever the case, you, you just jump on to boxofawesome.com, which right there, it gives you a good feeling. You're entering into a box of awesomeness. Boxofawesome.com. You take the quiz because you tell them what things you're interested in. They'll figure out what they got that matches what you want, and they will send you every month a box of awesome, and they release a ton of them every month across a ton of different categories and genres, or genres, as some people say. Each box is valued at around $70, but you only pay a fraction of that price. You're going to be fucking these people around, and you're going to enjoy it. You're going to be cheating them, you're going to be getting this stuff for a fraction of the price that they could get if they actually sold it piece by piece out in the real world, but instead they're just packing it up and sending it to you. And you're supporting small businesses who at the other end, well, there's that tinker in that basement with that hammer and a, a chisel behind his ear, and he's, he might even be chained to a bench, and he has to tinker enough dams to meet his quota that day or his landlord won't let him up into the daylight. So these people are buying some of his shit and helping him get out there and enjoy the fresh air. 90% of everything comes in your box of awesome is from a small up-and-coming brand that you may then say, hey, I'd like to invest in. I'd like to take over Joe's discount Framistats. And then you can do a hostile takeover. You can fuck Joe out of his life's work and you can be on easy street. But first, you got to go to boxofawesome.com. And right now, if you do, and enter the code JCE at checkout, you're going to get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com, code JCE. 20% off your first box of awesome. All you need is the code JCE. When's the last time you got 20% off the cost of some box? I don't pay for my box usually, but I will pay for box of awesome. That's because it's awesome. It's not merely normal everyday regular box find a box that fits you oh god damn it i don't even know what i'm <laughs> saying but check out the box of awesome from bespoke post otherwise known as bespoke post more information on that later this is your show yes and just find a box that fits your your interests and you'll be happy all right well the big news this past week in some circles in wrestling was the Wrestle Kingdom event in the Tokyo Dome, the 17 star event. Uh, and obviously, life is short and I've had a hectic week. And I didn't sit down. I understand the whole show went five hours. And FTR got beat again, didn't they? They've lost another belt. Now, there's no reason for them to have those other belts if they weren't going to have the big one of the American partners so that those. Other companies could crow about it. So now they're slowly, their gold has trickled away. 
But I haven't seen the whole thing, but I did get from an unnamed source from New Jersey no. by, by way of the Isle of Malta, according to ExpressVPN. I got the clips of the two things that caused the most talk and controversy or whatever. One was Sasha Mercedes Monet Banks's debut, and the other was the long-awaited showdown between Ostrich and Olivier. And so we're, we're going to talk about that for a minute. For a lot of the people who don't live their lives around what happens in a Japanese wrestling ring, some of this may be news for you. You don't know these things. So we're going to talk about it. But um, And you have seen those two things also, Brian, last, have you not? I watched the main, uh, it wasn't the main event. I was going to say the main event. I watched the Omega Osprey match, and I also watched the debut of Mercedes Monet. Wait a minute, that wasn't the main event. No, after that was Jay White versus Okada. Jesus Christ. And apparently they had a very difficult time following that. What did they do? Did they both come out with rocket launchers and fire barbed wire wrapped hand grenades at each other's fucking orifices? That was, oh, all right, we'll get to that in a second. But the former Sasha Banks is now Mercedes Monet. And if I was Taya Valkyrie, old Frankie Monet, Frankie Monet was a cool name for the girl with the little dog and the Hollywood and the blah, blah, blah. Mercedes Monet. She had dollar signs dyed or bleached or whatever into her hairdo, did she not? Was that what that I was? I saw the colors. I'm not exactly sure. I didn't, you know, I didn't even notice a... Dollar sign design. If it was there, it was just d- so many colors. It was a color, but there was there was a there was a plan to it. There, it was. Uh, she goes in colors, but anyway, she comes in colors. Not she goes comes in, in colors. Color, goes in colors. Well, that's 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 a deep cut in the Stones album. So forgive me. But anyway, the the other girl. What's the other girl's name? Kyrie Sane. On Kyrie Sane. Because she used to be something else, didn't she? Well, no, she was Kyrie Sane in WWE. Before was she that, Kyrie, she was, she was Kyrie a, Hojo. Kyrie, well, she all was right. a big fan Kyrie's, of former Met Howard Johnson. She could be fan of the fried clams at the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge diners, like Terry Justice was. But nevertheless, can we reference any more obscure people on this program that the vast audience has no idea what the fuck we're talking about? You know that we can. So Kyrie Sane has won her match and she's got her belt. And here we join the clip that I see where suddenly an entrance takes place. And here comes the artist formerly known as Sasha Banks, Mercedes Monet. And she's got this wild ass outfit made. So obviously they paying her the big bucks as, as has been rumored. She's got a brand new outfit. She's got the brand new hairdo. She just and, and they got the long walk there in the Tokyo Dome, so play, people have plenty of time to drink this in, and they're playing the music, and what a setup they got there, and we'll talk about it more when we get to the semi-final match on the card of what the New Japan production is like. It's, but anyway. I'm very curious to hear what you're going to say about that. And the announcers were over the moon about Mercedes Monet being there 
were the fans, Brian. Because now I know, and we're going to talk about it. We'll preface this before we go any further with both of these comments from the Dome. There's been, with the pandemic, the Japanese are very strict, and they they live in a very tightly packed, populated area to begin with. They've been pioneers of mask wearing for varieties of contagious diseases because of the close proximity everybody's in to each other. And, of course, there are more polite people and respectful of rules and manners and et cetera. So they, and during the pandemic, they obviously didn't allow gatherings, and then they let people back into arenas in certain percentages of uh, of capacity, and that's been modified over a period of time. So I'm not saying I know right now what the specific details are. If you're so goddamn interested out there, then look it up. I'm just trying to give you the basics in that they went from empty arenas, letting people in, uh, mask wearing was mandatory at one point, not sure of now, but the point is now they're back in the arenas, but there was at one point and maybe still be in some effect that people were not allowed to cheer. They could clap, but they couldn't cheer and be blowing germs out in the air. And I always laughed when I heard that, like anybody in this country would for five seconds would observe that rule. Like every wise ass and rude asshole in the world here, a drunk fucking redneck ah, instantly. But over there, they actually do it mostly. But was this a case of people not reacting because they're, because they were screaming in, in Kenny and Willie's match. But do the, did the people, did the name change and the completely different outfit and the different look and the different hair, did it fool people? Or did the general population there know that's Sasha Banks? Or what the fuck? This seemed a little, eh, the reaction, the response. Well, first of all, I mean, the Tokyo Dome is notoriously a hard building to get a big sound in because of the dynamics of it and it's not being I was hearing the camera clicks of the photographers at ringside taking pictures of this as it transpired beyond I that I don't think the sound was the problem well beyond that I can't speak to the popularity of Sasha Banks in Japan so I don't know okay so I don't know if the name the- change thing matters I mean that's the big question does everyone know who everyone is no matter what their name is I mean this ends up being almost like glow where McLean started his next promotion, whatever it was. Wow. Wow. And then he took the Glow Girls, but he couldn't use the Glow Girl names, but they were the same people, the same characters, just different names. I think everyone knows who she is. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely not as strong a name as Sasha Banks, probably, but it's had years to be developed. That I, w- I was just wondering if people were confused because even if they heard Sasha Banks was going to be there, would they recognize this person with different hair, different name on the screen, different music, different clothing, top to bottom? Or did they say, oh, there comes somebody we've not ever heard of or seen before? No, I I think everyone knew who she was. Okay, they just didn't care. Or the sound wasn't picked up well, I don't know. Well, Well, then, okay, we will give equal time if anybody out there had a better feed or was there live or whatever, um, has a differing opinion, but she walked in like she was hot shit. She was glorifying in the presence and she did the poses and she, she stripped her kimono off like she was about to grab a pole. I, it was, 
she's standing there with the, the other girl, Carrie Sane, who's just won the match. She's the champion. She got the belt. She's still in the ring. And instead of Sasha Banks getting, or Mercedes Monet, getting in and even doing these things toward Carrie Sane or taunting her or confronting her or acknowledging her, she did it to the people. Like, I'm here. And I'm about to strip, maybe, because she started taking her clothes off in a provocative way. And then she turned around and stared at Carrie Sane. And then Carrie Sane's holding the belt up, and everybody was immobile for about 30 seconds. Like, it's this... It look, it, you could almost tell that they, in their mind, were envisioning that this was the Andre and Hogan stare down from, you know, the fucking Silverdome. So they stare at each other, and then Mercedes offers Carrie Sane her hand. She takes it. They shake hands, and then Mercedes jerks her toward her into some— she spun around backwards and got the girl up on her back with her their arms hooked in some fashion— and then was going to fucking spin the girl around again, and I think a DDT was what it was going to be or something. And instead, when she spun her off her back, she just went to the mat. That She lost her completely, and then she went down right afterwards, and then Carrie Sane realized about a second after she'd hit that she was supposed to have been DDT'd, so she suddenly popped back up. Like she was selling her face. I don't know what the fuck happened. They just, they fell in a crumpled fucking heap like a Salvation Army drop box. And, and then Mercedes Monet gets the microphone and does a, a, you can't call that a promo. She spoke words on the microphone i was she drugged was she hypnotized was she you know it, 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 having a, a medically induced coma suddenly come on it just in a was she shocked that she had just fumbled cuz i mean that's the equivalent of a goddamn you know, a basketball player coming out on the fucking court and the first play grabs the ball does a dunk and breaks his fucking leg she came out with the big entrance and the music and the new outfit and everything. And the first thing she does, she jerks this girl up in the air and then they fall in a heap. Maybe she, she was rattled. But the promo was no emotion and just said some things and then picked up the girl's belt and posed and did a stripper dance kind of while the girl was laying there still selling nothing except falling off her back. Was that what you saw? It wasn't done well. She definitely sounded stuffy on the mic. Didn't really have anything coherent to say. They botched whatever the one thing is that they were going to do. She's always had exotic looks and different color of hair, but I don't know about that color of hair or I don't know if it's a wig. I don't know what the hell was going on. And we'll see. This will be interesting. She's now not with WWE. She's going to work 
in Japan. We'll see if that matters to their business. Will she go to AEW as Mercedes Monet? It's going to be a big test to see what Sasha Banks does and what she could possibly do outside of WWE. Well, and, you know, here's the thing. And we've talked about that some guys just don't fit in the WWE environment. They, they you know, they didn't transfer in the, in the 80s from Crockett to WWF or they they don't fit in the WWF or WWE environment today. They'd fit better in someplace else, whatever the case. The opposite can be true also. This girl has never wrestled anywhere outside the WWE or its affiliated programs, right? Oh, no, I think she, she did do indies before she went to NXT. Did she? I think so, because I want, I could be wrong, but I want to say she worked for Sheldon Goldberg. At some point, maybe I'm wrong, but I think well, so. she, she wasn't widely traveled. Oh, and, but at the same time, that would have been how long she'd been with the WWE over 10 years, Seven, I think. 10 years. Yeah. You rely some talent that don't have a strong background in, in wrestling of any kind, even if it's the independence, even, but you still get some experience, even if not a lot of, you know, teaching in psychology, you get experience in doing different shit that some of it works and some of it doesn't. And you figure things out on your own and you get ideas for yourself. And I know you can have all a million ideas for yourself that you've never tried. And suddenly you get to try them all. A lot of them ain't going to work, but the people who've had the, the background in the past, when they started to try a lot of that shit and get it out of the way, the Talent that just exists in the WWE environment tends to, in some cases, it seems like, rely on um, people, the producers that are always there to tell, oh, don't do this, or a performance center where you can get with your, your specific opponent. How, how long has it been since she has laid hands on Carrie Sane? Maybe they were rusty. The, the, you know, flawless production WWE has to try to hide a lot of their folks' flaws and weaknesses. And just the the script writers that come and get, say this and drill them on it or whatever the fuck, some talent can't stand that. I, it would drive me crazy. Some want to get out of it. Some kind of come to rely on it like that's what the business is supposed to be. And then when they're in a position where they're not only in a foreign country, but they don't have all that same structure that they're used to. Eee! So who knows? But it, it can work both ways. Some talent, it, that it, especially the ones that are not strong in, uh, mentally or physically or psychologically in a wrestling standpoint, but more into sports entertainment, they will struggle anywhere but WWE because they get used to that system. Does that make any sense? It does, and we'll see if that is the case with her. And it's also, you know, it makes sense, but also on the other hand, not that it disagrees with what you're saying, but if that is all you know, you have to be a special breed of wrestler to look beyond that or know beyond that or have instincts that are really good. Everyone wants to do their own thing. Everyone has their own ideas. Very few have the instincts that are correct to do them correctly. You know, I think when we see MJF and AEW... You are correct, sir. <laughs> when we see MJF and AEW, by and large, his stuff 
works in that way. He seems to get it in the way that, and again, I'm not focusing on Sasha Banks because I don't know, but there are certain people stuck in a system where they never develop those improvisational skills. They never develop skills to talk in a different way or be different than the system that you've been in your entire yeah. run. And and I'll tell you one thing about MJF, and we weren't even on him at this point, but just since you brought it up, he freaked me out in MLW that he has he has had the ability to grasp mostly exactly what this business is and had already studied people who were very good at it, you know, from 20, 30 years ago before it went to hell at a young age without necessarily having at that point talked to any of the greatest minds in the history of wrestling. I know he never met Eddie Graham, uh, but he, it, some people just get it uh, quicker and are more, have more aptitude for it. And some need to have everybody around them tell him what they, they just look at it. Like I'm a character actor playing a part. Here's the people who give me my script. Here's the producer that lays out my action scene. But a guy like MJF, gets the root of idea of wrestling and knows it's all about him and what he can do and does. There are certain people who don't need the producer to guide them. Yes. But every once in a while, then you have a collaboration where you got, you know, fucking Tarantino and Bruce Willis and MJF and Jericho. (laughs) All right. Before we get that far, (laughs) let's go to the, Second half of the double feature from the dome that I watched, not the main event. Now I'm, I'm told I'm informed by you that, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, who'd you say was in the main event again at the Tokyo dome after this match between ostrich and Olivier Jay white and Okada. Okay. If that had been Stan Hansen and bruiser Brody and this match had gone on before them, they would have beat the fuck out of, Olivier and Ostrich for leaving them absolutely nothing. Nobody in the business has anything to do anymore. But you can, I, you can it, kick out of everything nowadays. Well, no, not even nowadays. This was even specially egregious. But here's the, and I'm going to shock some people before we get too much farther. Stay tuned for the shock. It'll come in a little while. I am going to say some good things about Kenny Olivier in this little segment here, or at least some positive things. My overall opinion has not changed, but I can see at this point, not only can I see where some segment of people would like what this guy does over there, but also I believe I may have psychoanalyzed him based on the production that we saw from the Tokyo Dome. Anyway, speaking of production, New Japan, I mean, and. They've got a they've got a stadium there. What was the crowd? Do we have any idea what the attendance was? You can probably Google it by the time I finish this thought, but I'll look it up. Even though they've got a stadium, they take more space away, away from the setup than the WWE does for their video screen and their entrance and their their whole production setup, and it looks fantastic. And I know that WWE has the money to do it, but they don't. This looks grander and larger to me, and and uh, the the PA sounds even more majestic, and the lighting, and the and they even uh, 
again, the only entrances I saw was these two yahoos. But if they did this anymore, they choreographed some of the guy's movements when old Twinkle Toes had his left arm stick out on the big screen behind him, a wing of a bird or the angel, I guess, for his gimmick was spread out on the video screen. This was a big deal. Bird wings, fire, ominous music, choreography with the video. 26,000. Okay, there's 26,000 people in Tokyo Dome seats 60,000 or whatever, so they had some space to play with. And I'm, Are they back to full capacity, or is that what they were allowed to have? That's what they were allowed to have, I believe. Okay, so again, you know, but they still always do the big production. So they, they put a lot of time and effort into it. That was incredible. And after all of this, then they zoom in on... Our friend Kenny. Can can I say one thing if we're talking about the production? One complaint, and I traditionally have liked Japanese wrestling the last 15 years or so, a little more than you, and you and I both love classic Japanese wrestling. I think they rely on the floor cam too much. There's too much stuff shot from ringside. Yeah. I wish I could see more of it with a wide shot to really get the perspective. and, And they're in the dome and you wouldn't even know it. Because it's not a terribly loud crowd on their best day, and it's dark everywhere. So they, they, they didn't light it up. Did they not light it up because they didn't want to show that the people were spread out and that it was sparse, or that may be the case? I don't know. I mean, you can't really hide that, especially culturally, if everyone knows that's the case. But yeah. to me, you know, I always love the Mid-South Coliseum stuff where it was from a distance and you got to see everything happening. I don't always like the floor cam stuff as much. And this, it feels like it's been years, but it hit me watching this match. Just everything is from the floor. I agree with you there. Uh, and especially on the entrances. And that's where I was going with that. They had the big wide shot at first and everything looked majestic. And then they zoom in with the floor camera on Kenny and he turns around and the first thing he does is make a funny face. And and I know a lot of people are going to say, well, Abdullah the Butcher made funny faces, and so did Bruiser Brody, and so did uh, the Sheik. Well, they were a lot scarier to begin with. He just makes a funny face, and you look at why is that guy making a funny face. But nevertheless, he comes down, he's got the big entrance, and again, they do sync everything up with his, you know, with his uh, music and blah, 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 and he's got the cool outfit on whatever it may be he's uh, that had to be from some video game or it looks like the cover of something somebody'd wear on a video game and you can see on his face when he gets in and he does the poses and he does the whole thing this i think is what he thinks he is and has always wanted to be is a character in a cool video game with a cool outfit where he does the poses and the gesturing. He's playing a part in his mind, and wrestling was the only thing that he could figure out that he could do in the real, actual existing world to be a video game character. So that's why he became a wrestler. That's why he has never... You know, he's had these bizarre views about wrestling. He's never given a shit about the conventions of wrestling or the origins of wrestling, or he wants to expand what we can do with our art because wrestling was the his venue to be 
a video game character to not be Tyson, whoever he is, but this person he's created in his mind, Kenny Omega, the cleaner in a video game. And I know people are going to say, well, goddamn, a lot of guys create gimmicks in wrestling, yet at least they were earmarked for wrestling. They created wrestling gimmicks. They didn't create a gimmick for something else and then figure out the only way he could really get a chance to do it and wear all those cool outfits and do that cool shit was to be a wrestler. But that's why he doesn't care about wrestling. So, I I mean, I think that's... Can you say that anything he's ever said that has been reported in public would contradict that thought? Well, it definitely appears he wants to do something in the arts, in the theater, and this just happens to be the forum that he is currently employed in. All right, so here comes Will Ostrich, and I'm surprised that he could walk in that robe. Feathers and leather and spikes and studs and I don't know what the, I expected to see a rooster's ass hanging off the back of that thing. But we've gone from Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody to Harpo, Fingerfuck, and Will Ostrich. Main, not semi-finaling in, in Japan. So now they ring the bell. And they started wrestling. And it looked good. And I mean, they, one guy went for a double leg and they slid by and they're grappling with each other. Headlock takeover. He was being, both of them being serious. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. All right. I've misjudged some people here. And I swear to God, they did that for about 45 seconds. And then there was some cartwheels and a couple of round offs. And the first big dive over the top rope and the big bumps on the floor came at a minute and a half into this thing, which is going to go 30 minutes. And I'm like, all right, they're certainly not leaving much for later. And I will say, again, I understand why... For the newer audience that doesn't, they like the video game wrestling because it's a new thing. Video game wrestling is a new thing. So the video game wrestling audience is a new thing because they didn't have it before. So there was no audience for it. And for those people who don't give a shit whether it makes any sense or it's in any way believable and they scoff at actual pro wrestling. I can understand in this environment, in this presentation, why you would like Kenny. Because he does treat this more seriously over there. You can tell this is his fantasy. And and I know it's the big show at the Dome, but still, anything I see from him over there, he works harder, he treats it somewhat. I mean, you can't make that goofy face of his serious throughout the whole match. He's going to make some goofy faces and he's going to do some stupid looking things but he's working harder he treats it more seriously he still he does the acrobatics but they've got a little more snap to him and that's the thing his acrobatics are flawless he can't if you notice he can't strike his flat of the foot kicks look like a goddamn whooping crane with a broken leg and it's an awkward body movement. He doesn't kick with the toe of the boot or the top of the boot or get any snap in that. He's just awkward. It's like a, a trick circus horse counting to three. He can't throw a punch. 
and his forearms looked like shit, especially compared to Osprey's, who were who was laying him in somewhat. But his body movements on strikes look awkward. But his acrobatics, his dives with the pose over the top and his flips off the top are, you know, flawless. So, again, he's a great athlete, but not for simulating a combat sport. And I'll tell you one thing. Here's another thing, a good thing I can say about him, though. He gets the idea of the... Remember I've talked about a Vader buckle whip. Where old Leon would just grab a guy by the arm and just shoot him across the ring and not take a step with him. The guy'd have to run 20 feet to the opposite corner by himself. And at least Leon was 400 pounds, but still, that was a weak spot in his game. Well, I swear to God, the first thing I saw was Ostrich do a Vader whip and, and Kenny took off at 100 miles an hour all the way across the ring. But then when the shoe was on the other foot and Kenny was giving Willie the buckle kenny gave ostrich one of the best buckles i've ever seen not only went with it but leaned into it flung him boom and he sells it it was a great fucking turnbuckle right and then he goes kenny does and strips off the turnbuckle pad you know the new japan weird pads where they're not individual but they a strip that covers the whole corner and he strips the turnbuckle pad off. Okay, we're four minutes in and we're starting to do angles. All right. But he tried to buckle Will. Will fought out, but Kenny kicked him back into the buckle back first and then gave him a backbreaker and got a two count. So there's... That's a pay-per-view finish. You kick the guy into the fucking exposed buckle. That's why you expose the buckle. He went back first into the buckle, then took a backbreaker, got a two count, four minutes in. One finish down, but nevertheless. Now here's the problem. They left the pad off, and for the next 25 minutes, the referee never makes one fucking motion about trying to repair the damaged equipment. Like That's why you do that, either behind the referee's back so he doesn't notice, or later on in the match. Nevertheless, they were laying their shit in even though sometimes it was preposterous. And at one time, I swear to God, Osprey, did you see the thing where he somehow ran and ran up Kenny's front and backflipped off of him, landed on his feet, and then enziguried him? Do you I remember did. that? I did, yeah. Now that looked fucking incredible. So he does He does the run-up off of Kenny, foils whatever the fuck, lands on his feet, hits the enziguri, and the people popped. He didn't even cover him. They just rolled out to the fucking apron so they could go fight on the apron and the referee could stand there not counting on him. And I'm thinking, how the fuck? <laughs> that was one of the most impressive things in the in the match, and that you don't highlight a move like that and set up a whole fucking bill to doing it when you can do it like that is sets that these these guys that they don't either they don't take direction or they've never been given direction because that's why you take a bunch of fucking tall guys that can jump and teach them how to play basketball instead of just giving them a ball and telling them to figure it out but anyway so they try to do something on the apron Osprey jumped off backwards, but 
Kenny held the ropes and Osprey hit the apron back first and bounced to the floor. And there's a believable count out angle they could have done on national television to come back for a pay-per-view match because it was a goddamnest bump. But then Kenny pulls the table out from under the ring. And I'm like, fuck. Even here, you can't get away from it. Well, it seems like so, their wood is a little cheaper than our wood. Well, it was one of the, because our tables are now for mica, but they're still, still the old time particle board. So Kenny puts the table on Osprey on the floor upside down, goes to the top rope or to the apron and jumps off and does the double stomp on him. And his feet went through it and made a big hole in it. So in the middle of <laughs> In the middle of this sudden life or death struggle where they're doing all this shit to each other, he sticks his face through the fucking hole in the table and goes, here's Kenny. So 10 minutes, he was serious. And then who is the baby faced? Who's the heel here? People were just cheering for moves. Was anybody, did anybody care who actually won? I mean, people cared, but I don't know if either one would classify as the baby face or the heel in this situation. So then nobody, as long as somebody won, people didn't care who it was, is what you're saying. I think so. Well, there you go. So that's a good reason to fucking mutilate your body if they don't care whether you or the other guy fucking wins. Nevertheless, so as Kenny has come with the double stomp onto the table, onto Osprey, on the floor, Osprey immediately jumps up to his feet and fires a big comeback on the floor, just fucking lefts and rights and bang, bang, and then grabs Kenny and gives him a vertical suplex onto the table, that a broken table that's laying there on the floor, and then jumps up to the top rope and backflips off of it onto Kenny, onto the floor, after the shit that had just been done to him, immediately he just jumped up. And then I realized, wait a minute, they've been out there a while. So I went back and looked and then came back to the point I left off. They were there on the floor for three solid minutes doing all this shit with the referee either just standing and staring at him or jumping at him every once in a while going, get back in the ring. And, and there's no case. Was this... No DQ? Was it no count out? Lazy booking? I it, The announcement was in Japanese, but did I miss... Is this a death match of some kind? Or they just said, oh, they got stuff to do on the floor, so we're not paying attention. There's a lot of selective counting in wrestling today. It was like watching an NBA dunk contest. Yeah, boy, those are the goddamnest dunks I've ever seen, but there's nobody guarding. There's nobody playing defense. Everybody's getting a free shot. So anyway, the crowd, I said it was applauding moves. Oh, and then did you see? Will puts Ken, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this visually, but this was a great spot in the match. You know how you stand up on the second rope near the turnbuckles when you're going to grab a guy and give him a superplex, right? You're standing with one foot on the, on each side of the buckle on the middle rope. Then you're facing over the post, looking out into the people. Right. Well, Osprey put Kenny, his feet on the second rope. He's looking out there, but he grabs Kenny's head and tucks his head. So Kenny, look, he looked like he was trying to blow himself. 
he tucked his head underneath the top turnbuckle. And Kenny sold it like he was stuck there and couldn't get out. His feet were standing on the middle rope. All he had to do was raise either or both foot up and he would be immediately extricated from this situation. But he sold it like he was stuck there so that Osprey could kick him in the face in between his legs repeatedly over and over. Even though, as I mentioned, he obviously could get out any time he wanted. And on the very last kick, he fucking willy just fucking goes to the kind of the side with it, put a little spin on it, and kicked Kenny right in the fucking face, tatered him, and gave him a black eye for a phony spot. These guys were laying their shit in. They were beating the shit out of each other. It's the only time I think I've ever seen where two people were not only beating the shit out of each other for real, but proving the wrestling business was fake at the same time. So then they got on the top rope and somehow they jockeyed up into a position where they were both standing on the top rope and then Kenny DDT'd Osprey on the exposed top turnbuckle and almost killed both of them because they fell in a crumpled mess. And then Osprey rolled out on the floor and the seconds and Stooges started distracting the referee and making noise so that Osprey could get color for a while. And then Kenny got a chance to do the twinkle toes routine where he does the Canterbury prancing into the ropes on both sides and does a big graceful dive. And at that point, uh, he leaned the table up on the railing and started running Osprey's head into the broken table. And he was putting his own head through. He was breaking more of the table. He was committed to this. He was headbutting through the goddamn table. And, you know, I'm thinking that would be a great spot, too. And that's different. You don't usually see that. But after all this, I'm like, God, will this ever end? But again, you can tell the difference in Kenny there and AEW. His stuff looks better. He works harder. It's his, that's his thing. That's his fantasy. And AEW is a domestic paycheck. And of course, nobody in this country is going to, well, I can't say that. Fuck, there's 15 of them on AEW. Nobody means anything on a main event level in this country is going to let Kenny do all this shit to him that he's doing to Osprey, so they couldn't replicate it on AEW television, but good God. So then Kenny hit a great double-arm pile driver like Scotty Steiner used to do. It looked beautiful. Cover one, two, and Ostrich gets his leg on the ropes. They, every bump, every move that could possibly be done is be, nothing's working. I've, I've made note at least, these are random observations, folks. I laugh about Kenny's facials, at least he makes some. Ostrich's is just generally confused or blank. So the referee has never made any attempt to put that pad back on now, 20 minutes later, so Kenny got nutted on the exposed turnbuckle pad. But that didn't seem a pro to be a problem because seconds afterwards, he dropped Osprey face first 
onto the metal buckle and again didn't even go for a cover. <laughs> the guy just had his face rammed into the metal turnbuckle, which gave Kenny the idea to put him on the top rope, climb up there, put him on his shoulders like they're having a chicken fight, and then pop him up over his head and then German suplex him from there off the top rope for a two count. What? <laughs> Not even coming into discussion the idea that all of that required so much cooperation and or at least patience and or lack of defense from the ostrich. If logically, if you were trying to win the fucking match, when the guy just got knocked out face first into the metal buckle, would you want to take the chance on going up on the top rope yourself to do all this shit and potentially land on your own head to defeat an unconscious person? But the German suplex off the top rope was a two count. And then Kenny started doing the leg slap knee lifts that are actually shins to the left side of the chest. And they went through the part in the match where they would hit each other back and forth with everything quickly and nobody would sell anything. And then somebody would do something big and they would both sell. And as soon as they both finished selling, they would jump up and be a hundred percent going hundred miles an hour. Did you, what was the purpose of Willie pulled off his elbow pad like his arm is the size of Stan Hansen's and ran across the ring and slapped his leg while blowing his elbow straight over the top of Kenny's head and Kenny sold it like he was knocked out. I don't know. Did you answer. see that? Yeah, I don't have an answer for you what that was. Did that look, did that the way it's supposed to look? Does it look like that all the time? Did Kenny not know that he missed him? What happened there? I don't know. All right. They're beating the complete shit out of each other, folks, at the same time that all the shit looks fake. Then they stood there and did the pissy-looking forearm exchange while they were legitimately holding hands. Why were they holding hands, Brian? You know, support. They were standing in front of each other, and... I forget who was on which side, but one guy's left hand was holding the other guy's right hand, and they were hitting with forearms. And I, Kenny was the one that was having to use his left forearm because his right hand was being held. And his strikes looked like dog shit anyway. So Ostry, well, Ostry, Ostrich, Osprey would have won the, this exchange, but it wasn't. It was the forearms to the jaw and it being, being, being. And then suddenly. Kenny hit a German suplex, got a two count, and then Kenny held both of Will's wrists like he was going to do the double wrist German, but instead they turned over where they were just holding, now they're holding both of each other's hands. Uh, Kenny's holding his wrists, and Will looks up and spits at him and says, fuck you. So Kenny did another, the knee that misses and looks like shit. It's the shin to the fucking chest with another leg slap and then picked him up and hit the one winged fairy. One, two, three. And that was it. That was the finish. After all that other shit, 
bumps through furniture onto concrete with exposed metal turnbuckles to the heads. And suddenly they hold hands, exchange forearms, German suplex, hold hands some more, miss a knee, one-winged fairy, which there were a hundred bigger bumps, and he just beat him flat. They just, it was like they didn't, the, if people say, oh, they built to the finish through the whole match. Well, it was goddamn flattered and piss on a plate about 30 seconds before it came. The people were not standing screaming 30 seconds before the fucking one, two, three came. It just, they ran out of shit to do and then did a finish. <sighs> out of nowhere. What'd you think of Osprey selling? You know, he's he's the kind of kid, if if he'd come along 20 years, 25 years ago, and you'd have put him in a wrestling school and started him out in a territory and not let him get whatever mind he's got to think that this is kind of proper shit to do, he's got the idea to do this athletically. He can sell. Here's the thing. Kenny comes closer or will come closer or has come closer, he'll never be closer than he's already been, to being a main event level star in the United States than Osprey will, because Osprey still, unless he changes his look completely and becomes a caveman, as he ages, right now he looks like a mop-topped 18-year-old kid with an okay body, and he's very athletic, and his shit looks good, and it's video game wrestling. He could have been taught psychology what wrestling actually is, I think it's probably too late. And, and then, honestly, he wouldn't be in the spot he's in now because he doesn't look like anything that's ever going to be a main event guy in this in this country. Kenny comes closer because he's got the fucking body for it a little bit better, but his mental state is even worse. Because you can tell Osprey at least gets something of how to sell when he wants to, and his shit looks better overall than Kenny's does by far. He just doesn't have any personality whatsoever. So each of them, they're probably in the best place for him in the whole world right there because New Japan has fostered this environment, the ominous music, the big entrances, they're somewhat protected over there from doing really stupid shit probably because why would, can he do so much goofy or stupid shit over here and not there unless they don't let him do it there? And he works harder there. So neither one of these guys, mentally or physically, is ever going to main event WrestleMania or be a major level star of the level of Lesnar, Reigns, Cena, whatever the fuck, in the United States. But it works there with that presentation. So I can understand why the people that like that kind of wrestling would like them there. But, you know, again, it just ruins everything for everybody else. These two fucking self-indulgent assholes going out there and killing every goddamn move and finish ever. But if they're going to let them do it, but there's a limited audience for this kind of style and AEW's got all of them already. And Kenny has never even been the top guy in AEW. Well, there are people in AEW who would argue that, but let me ask you what? this. 
There are people Wait in AEW think when he was the world champion, he may have been the top guy. Oh, come on. I'm talking about the most important guy, the most well-known guy, the guy for ratings, right. guy for whatever. Top guy. Jericho's been a, a, a lot longer and, and, and or closer than Kenny ever was. I agree with that. Looking at this match and looking beyond this match, I understand why so many people loved it. Dave Meltzer gave it six and a quarter stars. <laughs> I didn't think it was that good. I thought it was really good. But the end, however long you want to count it, the last six minutes, the last ten minutes, I'm not a big fan of all the shit on the floor. There was a lot of that. But the ending sequences with nonstop kickouts of just big, brutal moves. Could you explain whether it's the match after this or whether it's the show after this, the next week after this, whatever it is, what kind of damage does that do, actually? The idea that everyone can kick out of everything or in a big match like this, it's just nonstop kickouts out of brutal moves. I mean, these guys look like they were banged up really badly at the end of this. Yeah, they were. That's because they I, were. It's, it's, it's amazing. They both beat the shit out of each other for real and managed to make everything fake at the same time. It's it's stunning. Uh, there There's different effects. The effect immediately on the match that followed it was, how are you going to follow it? What else are they going to do to... Uh, and I mean, again, we're talking about the end of a five-hour show. And they I'm sure they didn't show a lot of restraint in the underneath matches either. But the immediate effect for the people in the building, they still came to see that show and they're still going to like the main event, but how much can you scream and how much energy do you have? And also, how shocking could they make anything or surprising could they make anything or just uh, what kind of, what could they do to get the people up into their match uh, following all of that that hadn't already been done to take the edge off of it in some form. And I can say they could they could actually perform the shit really more believably and correctly and more psychologically literate or sensical. And that would be one thing. And they you still can. I'm not saying the people just walked out after that, but it takes the edge off what apparently New Japan considered its main event, or else why is they to put the other match on last? So you're disrespectful. The other match was on last. No, that's what I'm saying. It, it it takes the edge off what New Japan considered their main event, or they would have put the Omega and Osprey match on last. When they went out and did all that stuff, even if the people still liked the main event, it took some of the edge, some of the pop off. It just naturally has to when there's almost nothing left. And then you ask what it effect. It doesn't necessarily have an effect on the next show. It doesn't necessarily affect, have an effect on next month. It, it's Think about this. If we were talking 20 years ago, we'd be saying, oh, my God, can you believe that the guy kicked out of whatever the fuck that they kicked out of five times last week? Or can we be saying, well, they had a big angle where they had a backstage fight, and holy shit, this will get some people talking. But now 20 years later, they have four every week on every show. So no, So... It's a cumulative effect of just showing people that, okay, in a wrestling context, human beings can survive this. <laughs> and there and there'll be no ill consequences for anybody from it. 
And if you see that enough and you've then the it, like here in this country, as we've said, the table is useless. The table is fucking useless every week, every show, multiple times. Who gives a shit? Means nothing. All the stuff that means the the attack in the parking lot, the attack in the backstage area, the fucking anything that's overdone means nothing and say what they're doing there is the equivalent of overdoing angles with overdoing wrestling moves how the fuck many angles and finishes could you have got out of they perpetrated most of this stuff amazingly by the luck of idiots and fools they didn't paralyze themselves most of the shit looked good except for some of the wild flips where they just went past each other and you know pretended but at some point you've got to say okay what how can the human being and the human body not be defeated by this and in that case are they going to buy the next guy's finish are they going to buy the next angle we try to do or what do we got to do to hurt this guy for him to come back for revenge you know literally goddamn set him on fire that's the problem, like the old Roy Shire thing. He told Stevenson Patterson, don't have a match like that again. It was too good. You guys are going to leave next month, but I got to promote here for the rest of my life. How are you going to follow it? There's, there's, at some point you get there, don't you? Well, we shall see. We know Omega's banged up. Osprey, boy, <laughs> I mean, he's a young guy. No. He's, he's got to be hurting. And that's another thing, didn't this guy, Kenny just got finished having everything from his nose to his toes repositioned or sewed back up, all these injuries, and he goes out there and does that? Is Again, why does New Japan as a company want that? Because where are they going to find any fucking moron that will do this or more in two years? How are they going to follow it? Ah... <sighs> So anyway, yeah, I see his appeal to a segment of people who don't give a fuck about wrestling. And boy, in that New Japan environment and on their big shows with their presentation and whatever the fuck else they do to produce him or ride herd over him, he looks like a big star in a video game. So I can see why some people would like that. It didn't change my opinion of him and this... Jesus Christ. It, I don't even know what to say about the match. If, like I said, it's an NBA dunk contest. If you can, if you just are allowed to do whatever you can fucking do with no rules under the parameter of no game and with the opponents either standing by idly or actively helping you, yeah, you can put a lot of shit together. For the record, he wouldn't be the star in any video game that I play. <laughs> well, I don't know who the cast of most of those video games are. But what do you know, Brian, about uh, what's going on in the world of the Arcadian Vanguard Network and the wrestling news this week? Another very exciting week for the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes, of course. Subscribe to the Wrestling News, and every morning get caught up with all the wrestling news with our free daily morning wrestling newscast. Look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News, wherever you find your favorite podcast, or subscribe 
and download directly at thewrestlingnews.com. I also want to make mention of Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon. I will be the guest on next week's show. Two hours plus of me and Brian Solomon talking about everything and nothing. Check that out and go through the archives today. SUAWpod.com. Look for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Like I said, I'll be on next week's episode. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! Yeah, it wasn't a good one. Go through the archive today at 605pod.com. We're working on something. Stay tuned. And go through the archive at 605pod.com. Available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mothership. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Well, meanwhile, over on the other side of the world, on January the 4th, AEW had their Wednesday night dynamite program. Well, I guess they weren't happening at the same time because one Japan, one where were they? Uh, Seattle. That was that's the Hogan rule, right? The international dateline. But it was the same date in their various countries. Anyway, what a completely different look. <laughs> that AEW had there was some upgrades in production you could especially tell um on the entrance obviously they've changed the the entrance way and the guys come out of the the tube thing or whatever and there was more fan close-ups at the start and in the entrances if when you look at the crowd there's no children and nobody over 40 so they're, they're, they must check IDs at the door. Anybody under or over, you're fucking denied at entrance. But the arena looked great. At, but the problem with the, the new hire, um, not the problem with the new hire, but the new hire, what is his name, Michael Mansuri, he's going to be upgrading the production and giving them a new look, right? The problem's never been the packaging. It's been the shitty taste in cookies once you get into the nice wrapping. But nevertheless, so the first match was the one you predicted, Chris Jericho and Ricky Starks, the Stark man. And I like the way they're shooting the uh, the ring better. The floor cameras look a little positioned a little better. The lighting seems to look a little more vibrant. Um, I'm trying not to talk about the match. No, it wasn't a bad match. And here's the thing. I'm going to give Jericho some credit here. He knows how to have a match. He's 52, I know, and that's it's a wonder he's having any kind of match, but he knows how to have the match, but he cannot execute the things anymore with the gazelle-like quickness of his youth. So, again, you can tell there's the no follow-through on the arm whips, the feet in the mud, the facials look like he's ready to pass out, but he's doing the right things. He's calling the right shit. But Starks, you can tell, is a fucking greyhound. It's, you know, ready to run off and leave him, but he's, you know, he's following it. But basically, Starks had the fire, and finally he gets the heat Jericho does on Starks, and Starks makes his comeback, and he's got the fire. And you can tell the people are into him. This was a hot crowd in a lot of cases, but they love Starks, and he hits a power bomb for a two count. And Jericho stops him and goes for a lion salt and starts to get the knees up, super kick and two count. They go back and forth. And when Jericho got that Boston Crab, was a lion tamer, the people were up 
and Starks fought it well, and then Jericho would drag him back, and they got the people into this hold, which they did a good job of doing that, and they wanted to see Starks get the fucking ropes. And then suddenly, 2.0 number one, I can't remember which, pulled referee Aubrey, and Starks got the rope for a big pop, but the referee didn't see it, and 2.0 number two hit him with a fucking the baseball bat in the goddamn face and of course Jericho keeps the crab and Starks is out and then but then he started to fight back so they were milking the hell out of this perfectly except I think the the bat shot was extraneous he's he's in the fucking submission hold of a you know, main event wrestler and he's fighting and he's selling and the people are into it. We got to throw in, make the referee look like an idiot, hit the guy in the face with a ball bat. And now he can fight out of the hold, which he, he did. He turned and fought out of the hold, small package, two count Starks hit the spin and DDT nailed both of the two point O's ducked Jericho's clothesline and hit a spear one, two, three. Big pop, Starks won. That was perfect. And we've just talked about uh, Twinkle Toes and Ostrich in the Tokyo Dome was a classic example, but we've mentioned a bunch of them. Nobody builds a finish anymore for the big fucking pop. They just do everything they can do and then do a finish. Well, in this case, they built it and they milked it and they got it right. He's in a, the baby face is in a fucking predicament. He's in this hold. He can't get out of it. He's fighting. He's fighting. The people are with his struggle. And suddenly, finally, he does get out of the goddamn thing and he has a chance again. And you get the people up. He does a, the spinning DDT, which is a flashy fucking move. And both the heel stooges come up on the apron, but boom, he nails one. Boom, he nails the other. He foils that, but here comes the heel in the ring with a fucking clothesline, but he ducks that, and he hits the spear out of nowhere. Boom, one, two, three, pop. That's the way you build something. Out of the peak action. Not beating beating a guy with move after move, and then the tap or the pin is a foregone conclusion, or it comes after moments of immobility, or it's the 47th, most impressive move that they've seen in the match. So he did a perfect job, old Chris Jericho did. And and for that, wait a minute, for that, hold on, where's my goddamn, there we go. I have to I say, give, this was, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, I give him the smattering of applause. This was a really good match. I thought Jericho did a really good job. Starks was great. The crowd was as on fire as you would want them for this match. If it had ended there, it would have been like, wow, they really made Starks tonight. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You got it. You got it. Oh, thank you. The smattering for me. I'm going to give you the big one there. You got it because it didn't end there. And that it it that's that point there with the one two three Starks's hand up is where Jericho's going to end the story a lot. Oh, I put him over. It didn't end there. Within ten seconds, Starks didn't even have time to celebrate this. I don't even think he got to his feet. 
It barely had time to sink in. Here comes the rest of the Jericho appreciators. Hager in a leopard pajama top and leopard shorts and a purple fucking stupid looking hat. And the rest of the Stooges with rotten looking stomps and trying to get heat with the tennis shoes and no socks with their fucking trying to get heat on this guy, just meaningless pitter-patter kicks. And then here comes Action Andretti in with a chair and hits each heel uh, in turn, and Hager especially looked like a stumble bum. I would like to ask, what great Hager moment has he contributed to AEW besides something to do with foolishness? What great match? What great promo? What great angle? What part has he played? Every time he cashes his check, he should be arrested for grand larceny. So then, Action Andretti has routed all of the Jericho appreciators with the chair except for the girls. One of the girls came in and just looked at him and jerked his chair away from just took the chair away from the man. And the other girl behind him hit him with a nut shot. And then we went back to rotten, phony-looking heat that went forever. And it didn't end. And, and now, okay, have we established that Andretti is the only friend that Ricky Starks has? Not only no referees or no security or nobody, but they set a precedent a minute and a half ago that you can come out of the locker room and help. They'll even play your music while you're running to the ring. Andretti did it. So is the rest of the locker room gutless? Cowards? Or they just hate Starks and Andretti? I'm getting a little fucking hot at Andretti just seeing his fucking sappy face around. So then the heels pull out a table and they take time and effort into giving Hager, the only one probably strong enough to pick this fucking guy up, they give Starks to Hager who's on the apron and he powerbombs Starks off the apron through the table and then the heels celebrate and they go to the break without anybody even asking them politely to stop and leave. So by the time that we finished with all that fiasco, the bloom, as they say, was somewhat off the rose of Ricky Starks's big win, don't you think, Brian? Completely. It was completely off his big win. It was about him and Andretti getting beat down. You forgot that he actually beat Jericho, because everything you see is, from that point on is Jericho and his friends beating him up and then them celebrating, and then it's over. I wonder how that happened. I wonder how it worked out that way in the end. Nobody could have seen that coming when that whole thing was laid out by Chris Jericho to Tony's anxious ears. Hey, Ricky Starks has a history now of neck problems. I mean, at least from the one. Oh, Jesus, I forgot about that. From the one broken neck he had that we saw on TV, at least. They had to do that table spot. I was cringing for that. I forgot about that. The Gigi broke his neck on their television last year. So let's give him a, by, let's let this big, clumsy, awkward klutz, Jake Hager, powerbomb him off the apron through a fucking table to the floor. Nothing could possibly go wrong. Let's move on, because I'll tell you what can go wrong. And it, 
You know, it was obviously they got a new man in charge of production. Maybe they're doing a few things differently in the truck. These things can always happen on live production shoots, but it's good to know that Tony has hired some experienced professional talent that doesn't get rattled when there's production issues and can still carry off their duties in a professional manner. Don't you think? So Tony Schiavone was in the ring bringing out hangnail Adam Page. And this started reasonably well because Tony kept the microphone and he asked somewhat legitimate question and Page was giving an answer. He's not medically cleared. They had great handheld shot of the in-ring interview, by the way. It looked nice. And he says that, you know, he keeps getting these fights with Moxley, but he's going to be cleared next week in Los Angeles, and he's going to fight Moxley then, and he's going to knock his dick in the dirt. Now, dick's not a bad word. It's just preposterous coming from this pretend fucking butterfly jean-wearing cowboy, but that's not bad. But that, of course, was the cue for the Moxley music to play and for him to make the long entrance where he gets in the ring and he's got a microphone and now Tony Schiavone has left. They started out actually conducting an interview. The, the sportscaster on the program is interviewing one of the players at courtside or fieldside or whatever the case. No, now the other guy comes in. Tony has just disappeared. And they got a big face-off in the ring with Plumber Moxley and Hangnail Page. It looked like two homeless tweakers bowing up over the last rock. Did you see this? Oh, yeah. Mox Moxley is sniffing and making the faces and the Gene Anderson neck twitches. And Page is fucking turning around and wiping himself and adopting stances. I don't know what the fuck's going on. AEW botches, I swear to God, I just said that. Two homeless tweakers bowing up over the last crack rock. Clip the video and put the audio and it'll be hilarious. So it, it, let me just go back to, again, Tony leaving. The announcer runs the show. He should never leave until violence or unless violence breaks out. He's the one to do the fills. If this was a band, he's a, at this point is his time to be the background vocalist. He's asked Paige a question. Paige is answering it. Suddenly, someone else's music plays. Well, he's got to come in from the parking lot or wherever. So that's time for the announcers at the desk to set the scene. Oh, my gosh, here comes Moxley and any history they want to give. When the guy gets to the ringside area, they lay out so that the guy in the ring, the announcer in the ring, can reset the tone of everything for the people there live and for television, bring them back into the immediate moment of the ring and say, now, wait a minute, John Moxley, you're not scheduled to be here. And Adam Payton now, and Adam Payton, let him in. And then the announcer turns to Paige. Now, calm down, Adam. Then Moxley comes in. Now the announcer in the ring lays out again and holds the microphone for the two guys to argue at each other. He's doing little fills and, oh, you can't mean that or whatever. That makes it, instead of this awkward, these two guys that supposedly want to fight so bad, standing there looking like one's scared and the other one's glad of it while they run their mouth for 10 minutes. So anyway, it makes it look more unplanned. 
But here they all just accept what's happening because they know ahead of time because it's all fake. So the announcer just steps out and relinquishes control. And Moxley there starts his promo. And he's trying to say he's surprised that Paige made it because of the ongoing candlelight vigil with his concussion that he's had and he get knocked out. And Moxley has a smart-ass attitude and he's making smart-ass remarks. So one would think if he knew what he was doing that he he's switching heel. But again, you never know. But then as he started it, the crowd starts chanting, we can't hear you because the ring mic is feeding program audio, but not public address audio. So the, the it's going on on television. It's going out over the air, but the people in the building can't hear it. Well, now Moxley, of course, doesn't know this. He thinks it's dead. So he asks for another microphone and starts on it, but it goes off something or for whatever reason also. And Moxley says, what the fuck? on the air because the microphone is still feeding the program audio and they tried to bleep it, but they got, you could tell they got in one second too late because they're like, what the fuck did you say? Oh shit. And then when he gets the other one and he establishes it's on, he says, is this fucking mic on? Okay. And then he's like, go Seahawks. Let's get this back on track. This guy is not only an unprofessional idiot, and a detriment to the company in a variety of ways, but he can't think on his fucking feet. Number one, if you're on television with a microphone in your fucking hand, whether you think it's dead or not, you don't say fuck. But he does it constantly. I don't know how, how he hadn't get him, got him kicked off television yet. But secondly, he started then with the good microphone doing the promo over again whether it had gone to program or whether it had gone to the building or whether neither or whatever at that point to try to cover that, all he needed to do was say, now that I got a microphone that works, you could already hear me, Paige, but I want to make sure that everybody else in the building hears what I've got to say to you and then get to his point without the buildup of starting from scratch. Because now Hangnail is standing there like a dipshit through all of this. So he starts the same program. He said the first part of his promo three times. But then he said, nobody's been knocked out more than me, and you're playing the victim. And Adam Page says, well, I've been knocked out more times than I can count, and I'm not mad about that. (laughs) I'm mad that you don't take me seriously, and you feel threatened by me. What the fuck is all this? So they're basically bragging that everybody and their brothers knocked them the fuck out, but they're not mad about getting knocked out. They're mad that Moxley, or Page is mad Moxley doesn't take him seriously because he thinks he feels threatened by him. Now they're getting into this new age mental fucking examination, psychological breakdown shit. And so anyway, Paige says, I've had a month to to stew about it, and I've got two in the chamber for you in Los Angeles at the forum, like he's going to shoot him. And Moxley says, well, your punk ass doesn't belong in the ring with me, and I'll make sure you don't get back up this time. So a wonderful contest between two of the top baby faces. One's going to shoot the other one. The other one's going to kill the first one. 
ah, this was so long and fucked up. It, it, I don't know what to think. What do you think? What'd you think? Rick Ross thought he had a moment. That a <laughs> motherfucker on TV. He forgot about the man who got go fuck yourself on TV. Making a big return. Of course, we're talking about John Moxley. I was just howling with laughter once. Because I didn't even hear what the. I just heard fuck. And, and I started losing it. I'm like, of course, it's Moxley who fucking did this. Yeah, I mean, the promo, it was, it's hard to give it a fair shot just because it was so disjointed because of that whole middle moment with the microphone. When they got back started saying what the fuck they were saying, it wasn't that... Uh, I don't know why Moxley went back to saying, like, the very beginning of everything. He, like he said, you said, he, what, three times he said everything. Well, he wanted to make sure, but who are we supposed to cheer for here? The sensitive Again. cowboy. I think Moxley's already a heel. Oh, goddamn! Then boy, he needs a more likable babyface than Page. But I guess we've said that a bunch about Page. But seriously, who's the last heel he's worked with? He was just working with Top Flight. They're clearly babyfaces. Well, then how does Claudio figure into this? He's a smiling Swissman. He's a passive heel. <laughs> is that is that anything like a power bottom? He's a he's a passive. He's a power bottom heel. Well, moving on. Um, <laughs> Please, let's. <laughs> yes, let's move right on along <laughs> down the road around the bend. The next segment uh, or next match, a couple segments. This may have been one of the best things they ever did on television on AEW. Some way or another, Jeff Jarrett's only been there, what, a month, and already he's gotten a wrestling match and a wrestling finish on the broadcast. Something I thought was impossible. It was for the AEW Tag Team title, Lethal and Jarrett against the Acclaimed. And, of course, Sanjay and Zippy were right along ringside. And let, let me get a piece of Caster's rap out of the way first. Uh, can, you, can you give me any kind of a beat? Oh, yeah, Brian. Hold, on. hold on, hold on, hold on. I just got one of these. No, this doesn't work. Hold on. Oh, well, well, wait a minute. Sounded like chopsticks. That's not, that's, that's not, that's not a beat. That's the theme to the Twilight Zone. Okay, that's a little bit of a beat. All right, no, no, you just, 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 just stop it. Oh, my God. You're giving me convulsion. I'm going into seizures. All right. You want to go um, acapella? I'll go acapella. Or even to an archipelago to get away from you. <laughs> hey, Jeff, your wife better say less. She's getting dragged online worse than Skip Bayless. A claim will hit you harder. You're going to take the L and blame it on Dixie Carter. That's what he said. I don't know how I could have put that to fucking Zamfir's Pan Flute's greatest hits there. But anyway, remember, I, I've talked about when FTR had the match with the Acclaim. You think, okay, FTR is the best tag team in wrestling right now in the ring. You would think they would have the best match with anybody. But no, because here is FTR's one weakness. They overestimate the ability of their opponents to follow them and to follow them in the proper timing and fashion to make it look anywhere near 
appropriate. They get too complicated with everybody because they think that they can lead them through it. And inevitably, the other team ends up looking at some point like a lost ball in high weeds. But here, obviously, this was Jeff Jarrett's match. I mean, seriously. He evaluated not only how to get the most excitement out of his television time, how to do a job, again, without actually doing a job, but in this case it was called for because they're the new tag team in town, and you don't want to just go beating the fuck out of them flat in the middle right away. The acclaimed are over, so you want to accentuate their strengths and at the same time try to get some heat off of their, you know, their their overness, and you want to keep people's attention and not run off and leave them where they look sloppy. And that's exactly, and that Caster's got the thing going with Jeff because of the tweets and Karen being involved and et cetera, et cetera. So all through the match, they've already got the story going of Jeff slapping Caster in the face, Caster trying to get back at him, slap him in the face. They want to get in with each other. Jeff doesn't want to. They, they worked over at the start, the acclaimed shine and work over lethal a little bit. And then they got the chance to double team Jeff a time or two. He'd scoot out, and then they got Billy Gunn kicked out of ringside going to the break because Lethal slid out and nailed him, and he tried to get in the ring, and the referee didn't see the previous thing but saw him trying to get in the ring and ejected him, so we got chaos at the break and controversy. It, the first segment was all wrestling, no gymnastics. It was all wrestling moves and or psychology, and they come back, they're getting heat on Bowens, Caster's working for the tag. Lethal misses an elbow off the top. Jeff knocks Caster off the apron and blocks the tag. And Bowen's belly-to-backs Jeff then, boom, and gets the tag. It wasn't a hot one because, again, somebody could have covered it with Bowen's that all he had to do from that belly-to-back was be disoriented and roll to the neutral corner and try for a tag and let... uh. Jeff, well, he was, he was, no, he was going to tag too. So let Jeff get the tag first to lethal and then roll for it and get a hot tag. But instead it, he was right in front of it. He was too close to caster, but the people popped because they want to see caster. Caster made a nice comeback. Cross-bodied lethal off the top rope. Jeff made the save, slapped caster in the face. Caster gets on top of Jeff. He needs work on his punches, but the enthusiasm was there. And then they go to double-team Lethal, and Jeff pushes Caster off the top to the floor. They hit Bowens with a double-team, get a two-count. But Zippy, the pinhead's at ringside. He hits Caster on the floor, and the referee kicks him out of ringside. And here come a bunch of referees to take out the giant nine-foot radioactive mutant, whatever the fuck. So now people are up like all this shit's going on. Jay Lethal goes for the lethal injection on Bowens, but Bowens foils that. But Jeff hits the stroke on Bowens from behind. Lethal covers. Jeff gets out. The referee turns around. One, two. Bowens' leg goes up on the bottom rope, but Dutt knocks it off. Three. Oh, my God. They've won the belts. Holy shit. The people are going, what the fuck's going on? But here comes Ref Aubrey. And she explains what happened to the referee in the ring. She goes, 
Will you and stop instantly it? he, I'm sorry, he knew. <laughs> and he tells the announcer and the announcer, ladies and gentlemen, this match will be restarted. And that's where I wrote, God damn, Jeff already has got an actual wrestling match and a finish and an angle on his fucking show already. And immediately the heels go to Bowens, the, the compromised baby face, and they get on him, but he foils them and super kicks Jeff who goes to the floor and lethal schoolboys Bowens from behind and puts his feet on the ropes, try for another fuck finish, but as the referee slides into count and doesn't see that, Caster pushes the feet off and he goes into Bowens' roll-up, one, two, three. Holy, that's the way you build a finish. That's the way you build a match. That's the way you get a young babyface tag team that's a little bit green but has a lot of fucking enthusiasm and a lot of people that like them, that's the way you get them over. And at the same time, the heels have a bitch. Hey, we won. Well, you wouldn't have won if the referee had seen such and such. Well, that doesn't count because the referee didn't see it. What's this other referee? There's controversy. That's the way you put shit together, folks. It's not that fucking difficult. Everything that we have talked about, all these matches missing, had in, in that match, you had some of it. <sighs> and they didn't even do an afterbirth. Imagine that. Is that unusual? What about it, Tom Jones? What'd you think? I thought it was great. I loved it. The crowd was eating it up. Again, hot crowd in Seattle. And they loved this, and that elevated the match even further. Obviously, Jeff Jarrett gets a lot of credit, and you're putting it all on him for putting a match together. But I think the acclaimed... It's one of their most impressive outings. Again, it's not an FTR yeah, kind of match, no. but what they were able to do and get the room behind him, that match with them against Swerve and Keith Lee at the pay-per-view where they didn't win the belts, so much of the story was about the crowd getting behind them and wanting it. And then they kind of got away, and I don't know. There was a different energy for a little while. This was the crowd really wanting these guys to win and really being into the match. Yeah. And great match, and I'm going to say it here. There are moments that are misses, and we didn't have a six-man match on this show, and last week there was an Orange Cassidy promo coming out of two good matches, and I didn't like the post-match in the Jericho thing here, but I've enjoyed Dynamite by and large the last several weeks, and again, good first match, I really liked it, didn't like the after-match stuff, really liked this tag match. There was no bad after-match stuff. They're, they're, they're dropping some of the clown show elements. And and let me and let me say this: I, I'm not taking any credit away from the acclaimed. They held up their end. They did their part. I'm saying this was a match that Jeff Jarrett laid this match and finish out. I'm sorry, that's just a fact of what happened. Somebody can argue with me, unless you were there, you don't know. But I do know because I know what the fuck I'm seeing normally and what the fuck I'm seeing from Jeff and have for 20 years. He laid this match out, but it makes fucking sense, and everybody liked it. You know it doesn't make People sense. Couldn't still? have fucking screamed any louder. Go ahead. You know it doesn't make sense still. Okay, Jeff and Lethal they're together for whatever reason. Sanjay was with Lethal already. He's with them. Too goofy for me as a manager. Although I thought he was good at ringside here. Again, the timing of him getting the foot off the rope was perfect. But what's up with the giant? Why did they bring him on TV now? Put him with them, and then he still doesn't do anything. And I no think, one wants to see him wrestle. 
I'm telling you, it is. I think it's just his ethnicity and Sanjay's is the only read because somehow Tony thinks that 5 billion people in India or wherever are going to watch because he's walking around in a fucking ill-fitting suit. I have no idea. But anyway, let's move on more quickly to get to the next uh, good show uh, so far, though, right? Contention. So far, so far, we're doing pretty good. But I got a lot of questions here. Uh-oh. Tony was with uh, Britt Baker and Jamie Hader talking about who's Soraya's partner going to be next week. Didn't Britt Baker basically come out and say Soraya doesn't understand what AEW is and what it means to us and our fans, and she just wanted to come in here and run things and. Well, we're originals. And so these they are baby faces and burying Soraya as, as about as deep as you can bury her with the fans. Is this on purpose? Do they know what they're doing? Is no, it no. Britt Baker knows what they're doing, but Soraya or Tony doesn't? Or it's a bizarre build to the unpopular new girl in town having a mystery partner next week, and we're on the side of the heels. Well, I, I, I don't know. Can we move on? Please. Okay. Brian Danielson versus Tony Nese. And Danielson was over like crazy in his home state crowd, at least. And they had a good short match. Nice is a good athlete. Uh, they were going to use him at one point and never did, I guess. But Danielson had just a, enough of a match with him. He did all of his stuff the people wanted to see. He sold for the guy to not make him look like a complete asswipe, but he sold for a guy that's not presented as a main event star just long enough. And he beat him in just convincing fashion and when just the match is what it should have been and ended at the top of the nine o'clock hour. Bravo. And then he gets the microphone for the in-ring promo. It's great to be home and he's ready for another fight and he calls out MJF. So now they got Brian Danielson calling out MJF at the top of nine o'clock Eastern. Okay, great. Old Michael Mansuri's doing a pretty good job, except for his audio guy who probably got fired. And MJF comes out to the stage and immediately refuses to wrestle. And the story, he gets a big fat check wherever he, or whether he wrestles or not. And he's not a mark like Brian Danielson. And basically, you know, I mean, we're this program is probably above any others in the world talking to a smart audience. But basically, he's telling Danielson, you're a mark and you love to have these matches and get your body beat up. I don't care as long as I get a check how many times I wrestle. And, you know, I have the star power if Lance Tormund Dean Malenko had a love child. It would still have more charisma than you. And then MJF insinuated that Danielson's father was a goat uh, because his mother could not find anyone to have human or have any human suitors. And then Danielson started talking about the number of human suitors that MJF's mother has had. Um. It's great. You believe both these guys because they're so natural in their delivery. If they had, in hindsight, as much business as they had to do on the other side of this, I believe I would have shortened up the goat fucking. Just a bit. And the people in the arena loved it, but you're serving your television master also. But it was fucking. You believe both of them, and you believe they're coming up with it on the sperm of the moment. 
But basically, MJF then says, well, Danielson, you think you're the best in the world. Who? Who thinks that? The Mark Journalists? Well, I'm touted as the best in the world by all the top names. Disco Inferno, Eric Bischoff, and the smartest of all of them, and my number one fan, Jim Cornette. Then apparently I trended again on Twitter as a result of this. I found out the next morning. And uh, amazingly, I got massive cheers. Brian, did you hear all the massive cheers I got? The people chanting, we want corny, clap, 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 clap. Oh, I didn't hear any of that. I heard a lot of boos. Actually, it did sound something like we have announced that all of your cars have been destroyed in the parking lot while you're in here. Oh, it sounded kind of like that. But anyway, they're going back and forth. So Danielson threatens to come up there and fight him, and MJF retreats to the announced position. And the fans start chanting, shut the fuck up. And again, I'm so entertained by both these guys, but I'm almost thinking about a chant of get to the point by this time. And so MJF reveals he's talked to Tony Khan, and if Danielson wrestles every week on TV and wins, he'll be the number one contender by February the 8th, and he'll face... Danielson on March the 5th at Revolution, all these dates, I'm trying to jot them down. And MJF says, my way or no way. And then Danielson, instead of, he says, well, Sterling's a horrible lawyer. Is And MJF had mentioned his lawyer, Mark Sterling, will draw up a complaint or whatever. Please, MJF, please don't align yourself or mention this fucking guy again because it's, it's, has the stench of grisly preliminary phony shit on it. But anyway, finally, Danielson agrees to it. If he can name the stipulation of the match on pay-per-view, a one-hour Iron Man match, which was also almost like this one-hour interview. And then the fans goad Maxi Pad into it, and he does a good job of shitting himself before he agrees to it and says that you know, he'll, Danielson will be like every other big opportunity. He'll choke. And Danielson says he's going to run through everybody and kick MJF's head in and expose him. And it took a while, and they're, they're both very good at this. But I believe I would have tried to split this up into two parts if I had to do all that material at the same time. I, either that or they should have got a little bit to the meat of the matter a little quicker. What do you think? I mean, I was enjoying it, and I knew it was going on for a while, but I'm not going to complain because I wasn't yet bored with it, but it did go on a right. while. And I'm, I mean, I love the mention, and, you know, I know that uh, I'm an international superstar, but he could have glossed over that point and got to the, to the business a little quicker if he had to, when they had so much back and forth to go through. What were you going to say? Well, a couple of things. Let's talk about MJF mentioning you. Because obviously a lot of people lost their minds over that, you being mentioned positively on AEW TV. What are your thoughts on it in general? And any issue being in the same breath as Disco Inferno and Eric Bischoff? Well, I was about to say, you kind of, you just contradict, contraindicated yourself there. You said I was mentioned in a positive way, and then at the same time I was grouped with Disco Inferno and Eric Bischoff. So, uh... No, I mean, honestly, let's face it. MJF knows who's going to get heat with that audience because I just talked about it. They're talking to the smartest audience probably of any. I'm not talking intelligence-wise. I'm talking about in the inner workings of the business, the smartest, quote-unquote, audience 
of any wrestling program. So those are the, the hot buttons. And there's obviously a reason why he mentioned me last. You always save the big pop for last. So I don't, again, I am his number one fan. So he didn't tell a lie and I don't mind him bandying my name around for a, a moment of heat from the rabble. So that that's more than fine. But to be grouped in with, you know, the other guy, well, you know, I guess sometimes we got to put up with these things. What was the other part of your question? What are your thoughts on the use of, let's just say the one word he used, Mark, but I mean, you talk about inside terms being used, but specifically Mark's being used now more than before, and he used it several times here. What do you think? You know, again, this is, it's the smartest audience and they know these terms, but then the problem becomes that a lot of times, whether the heel's saying it or the babyface saying it, it's it's kind of true. A lot of these guys do have a big element of markishness in them. And, I, you know, again, I think there's always a way to say the same thing that you're saying to the smart audience to everybody where everybody can understand it. You don't just say, Brian Danielson, you're a mark. You want to come out here and wrestle and risk your life all the time. You say, Brian Danielson, you're an egomaniac. You want the attention. You want the spotlight. You want to come out here and wrestle. You're doing damage to your body every time you get in there because wrestling is a dangerous sport. But you do it for free. Hell, you'd pay to do it. Just to be able to go out there and hear the cheers from all these idiots that think you're something special. Well, I don't care about them. And I don't care about my art. I care about my bank account. So all you are is just an egotist looking for cheers and glory and gratification from all these goofballs. And I'm trying to make money and do as little damage to myself in the process as I can. You just talked to the smart fans, but you didn't say Mark. You didn't use inside terms. And and the guy becomes a heel because he can get away with working less hard than one of his co-workers because of his status or his contract or whatever. And that always gets heat with people, right? It should. Beyond, anyway. Beyond the actual performance of MJF, and we're going just based on audience reaction, is it even crazier now than it was a few weeks ago that there was a push to turn him babyface? <laughs> Again, it didn't take two weeks to get people back in the right place. Remember, I thought it would even take him a while because he'd have to go and switch every live crowd individually, but they watch the TV. They're the faithful, so they've kept up with it. The momentary diversion can now be taken as he purposely put himself in the sympathetic position to gain people's trust to ultimately screw everybody, especially William Regal, and get the fucking prize that he wanted. So he is a full-fledged heel again. But no, there was no... It's no surprise to me that he was able to turn the people. It was a surprise to me that anybody couldn't see that it was way premature and bad for his development to put him in a babyface position against heels for any length of time at this stage of his career. Now we'll move on. Well, things are right in the universe. And again, I'll repeat what I said earlier. So far, 
after nine o'clock here, I'm enjoying, by and large, I'm enjoying Dynamite again. Well, here comes Swerve Strickland against A.R. Fox, and Swerve had Parker Boudreaux and Tattoo Face in his corner. You know, there's pictures of that guy playing professional baseball without tattoos on his face. So what happened to him? Did he have brain damage in some type of skiing accident or get on the, the fucking uh, bathroom counter methamphetamine heavy or whatever? When did he just crack up? He's a big Guns N' Roses fan. He always said, I wish my face could look like Axl Rose's arm. Well. I really don't know. It looks it looks more like somebody's fucking ass right now. If, if Actually, if you took a, a jackass and you shaved his ass and made him walk backwards, it would make old Tattoo Face a good face. Anyway, Swerve won this match. We're moving along quickly here. This is a good match. You didn't like this match? There, well, no, there wasn't anything the matter with it, but I don't really <laughs> care right now about what's going on. I've liked A.R. Fox. With either of these people. A.R. Fox. I've liked him so far. Is that his name? A.R. Fox? A.R. Fox. A.R. Fox. A.R. Fox. M.R. Wangs. M.R. Not. L.I.B. M.R. All right. Anyway, Rene Moxley Good was in the back with Soraya and Tony Storm and Hikaru Shida. And, okay, Tony Storm's been a babyface, right? Yes. Okay, so at first I thought, well, they're going to turn Soraya heel, but then I thought, well, if they do, by the way they've done it here, they'd turn Tony Storm heel too, so is Hikaru Shida going to become a heel because she's offended by what they did? Here's what they did here. Renee Moxley-Good is with these three young ladies trying to figure out who Soraya's mystery partner is going to be, and Soraya says AEW has the best female roster in the world. She actually said that with a straight face. And she said, I'm sitting next to the best in the world, too. And so, I mean, uh, both girls, I think, would be beaming. And then she turns her back, obviously and purposely, on Sheeta and says, so that's why, Tony, you'll be my partner. And Sheeta gets what the fuck face, and the other two start doing a fake thing where they start talking, here's what we'll do in our match. And then they're actually moving their lips, but they're still mic'd. But you're not hearing what they're saying because now Renee is reacting to, well, Hikaru, I'm sure they didn't mean to piss in your face. So what is the story here? Who's turning on it? It's awkward. Who's turning on who? Who are we supposed to cheer for? The baby faces are backstabbing bitches. The heels are rallying the fans against the baby faces. What the fuck's happening here? Let me start by saying I think Soraya and Renee have certainly so far been money well spent. They've really made this show a lot better. This was really bad. Bad acting. The shots, the side shot, like fucking, they were doing You Bet Your Life with Groucho, and they're getting his pan <laughs> shot of his reaction to all this. I don't know. I don't care. Uh, Tony Storm had been a babyface. Soraya is doing whatever she's been doing there. Sheeta just popped up again. And uh, we'll see if Mercedes Monet plays into all this. And well, next up was another, I like the gun boys, the ass boys, as we affectionately call them here, Colton and Austin Gunn. I like them. I've talked about they have tons of potential in the ring, but now they've given them a sports entertainment segment. I don't know whose material this bullshit was. 
But they're presiding not over FTR's funeral, but over the the burial of the funeral of their legacy. It was the we're here to say, give pay our respects to FTR's legacy. I mean, it's the first time I've ever seen the burial come before the funeral because they've been buried for the last three months. But nevertheless, they, obviously FTR's in Japan. They're not there. So this was the memorial for FTR's legacy. They had a great year, and the guns laughed at them that they'd lost all their belts. And the crowd started chanting what, or doing the what thing real bad at them. And then suddenly they get to a point where they play FTR's music, and the people kind of get up a little bit, and then the guns start laughing. It's, ah, they're not here. We made fun. They made fun of all of them because, you know... <sighs> It's been done before. It's been done better. It's actually probably not what the people want to see in a heat-getting way, but just in a way that reminds them of how badly FTR have been mishandled and how I think it's pretty much out there now. A lot of people know that the <laughs> the Bucks just weren't going to fucking drop that title and that third match to them. So anyway, it didn't go long. And it wasn't horrible, and there were no production malfunctions, but the people just wanted it, and it didn't work too good. And are we hearing FTR's contracts are up in April? Because they certainly had to be high on Triple H's call list, but with Vince now, who the fuck knows? With 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 the return of the incomparable Vince McMahon... That'll sound a lot better in post. Um, I did it again. Sorry. <laughs> eh. Anyway, so that was that. And then the came the tag team match. Sky Blue and Kiera Hogan against Jane Cargill and Red Velvet. And after that match, Sockface had an, a near aneurysm reading off 80 matches that were upcoming on their bogus Friday night show and the Battle of the Belts throwaway special that's been completely prostituted and bastardized into just filler programming and you couldn't keep track of anything and he sounded like he just snorted a goddamn railroad tie-sized rail of fucking high-grade Colombian Peruvian fucking cocaine. And then apparently that person who just did that came up with the next match's finish. The main event of the evening, Brian. For the, what this was for the TNT title, not just the, not the Ring of Honor TV title too, but just the TNT belt. Samoa Joe has them both. Had them both. And Darby Allen is a hometown hero there also. When did Washington State come up with so many wrestlers in the business? But. So much wrong here. So it's his big, big return to his hometown, Seattle. And I guess it's his gimmick, but he skateboards to the ring wearing a homeless bum's dirty coat, blue jean shorts, and ballet leggings. That's our Darby. Here comes Joe. He's got the Ring of Honor TV belt and the TNT belt. 
He calls himself the king of television now. And remember, just last week, not only did he kneecap Wardlow with a lead pipe, but then he beat Wardlow flat in the middle, one, two, three, in the ring. Then he stood up and looked at Wardlow and fucking smacked him in the face with a title belt, and then he cut Wardlow's hair off. That's what Samoa Joe did last week, right? Thank God Darby Allen was there to make the save for his little buddy Wardlow last week, or it could have even been worse. But Darby hit Joe with the skateboard one time, and Joe took off. So, in this instance, on this television program, Nick Wayne, who is the son of Buddy Wayne, not the Memphis Buddy Wayne, but a Buddy Wayne from the Northwest who is a wrestler, passed away not long ago, and Nick Wayne is his son and has been has broken in and is wrestling also. He's in the front row watching his friend Darby Allen. So, of course, the heel comes out, snatches Nick Wayne by the neck. Samoa Joe does. He's going to fucking do whatever. And Darby dives out of the ring and blisters Joe with one of those dives, just bounces off of him. Looks great. And to his head, to the floor, Darby, by the way. Okay, that'd be a great way to jumpstart this fucking match. I'm with it. But they don't start the match there. The, Darby gets on Joe. He's a fucking behemoth, twice the size of Darby Allen. Darby beats him up the aisleway with the skateboard. They go out into the crowd by the stage. He comes off the stage with the skateboard on Joe's back. In a, Explain to me the goddamn sense you have a club in your hand. And the guy you're mad at is in front of you, but you don't hit him over the head with it repeatedly. You get up on the stage, jump off and skateboard off his back. And then he, Darby Allen gets a ladder and sets it up on the ramp and cannonballs off the top of it and did a, where he did a forward flip and Joe's standing there underneath him and he hit. Joe's shoulders, Darby did, with his ass, rolled off of Joe's back and landed on the ramp with his left leg folded up underneath him and immediately sold it big. But within 30 seconds, it switched over to selling the right leg. So I don't know what the fuck was going on there because it looked like he broke his leg. He very well could. If he didn't have no ligaments and rubber band tendons, he would have broken his leg. But then... They get into the ring, and the referee rings the bell to start the match. Now I'm already not interested in this goddamn match. I like Samoa Joe, and I will tolerate Darby Allen in certain circumstances. But I don't give a shit what they do now, because they've just killed the whole thing by doing all the big stuff first. I've eaten my steak. Send back the salad and the fucking broccoli. I'm not hungry anymore. So they ring the bell to start the match and immediately go back out to the floor. And Samoa Joe rock bottoms Darby Allen on the metal stairs for a break spot. Now bear in mind, this dumb shit has already dived headfirst out of the ring into Samoa Joe, bounced off and landed on the floor. He's come off a fucking top of a ladder Onto, a, onto the entrance ramp and taken most of the bump because nothing harmed Joe out of that. He's been rock-bottomed on the ring, metal ring stairs 
That looked awful. I mean, not awful like it looked bad, but it looked like it really hurt him. That looked yes. bad. So they came back from the break. I had gone to get a Sprite, and I quit actually paying any attention. And I just, I was reviewing some of the emails that we read at the top of this program. And finally, they did more, a, a bunch more shit to Darby Allen. And after everything else that had been done to him, the 300-plus-pound Samoa Joe got Darby Allen, 150 pounds if he's lucky, in a rear-naked choke on the ground. And Darby Allen fought up with Joe hanging around his neck, ran forward and ran Joe into the turnbuckle to break the choke, hit what he his leaping sunset flippy thingy that he calls his code red, and a coffin drop, and then went up to the top and hit another coffin drop. One, two, three. Over Samoa Joe. And again, not even a built-up finish that came out of nowhere where a resourceful babyface capitalizes on a mistake that the giant heel made or a Hail Mary or a lucky shot. He got up out of the choke, just broke it, hit his move, then hit his finish, then hit his finish again, and then pinned him. And besides that, he pinned Samoa Joe. This 150-pound, emaciated, skinny, milk toastish, as MJF says, wannabe school shooter, great character babyface. People like him. He's got charisma. He's got athletic ability. But this apparently means that he's the baddest man in the company. He's tougher than everybody because he just manhandled and pinned the guy that last week kneecapped, beat up, beat, knocked out, and humiliated fucking Wardlow. Now, what kind of revenge is Wardlow going to get? Could, could they have brought Wardlow out in a wheelchair at ringside to say, hey, Darby, when you get finished, can you just butt fuck him for five minutes or so, but leave some for me? What the? It wasn't a disputed finish. No. It wasn't a lucky finish. He just beat the fuck out of Samoa Joe and beat him. Well, no, he beat after, him. After, he beat him. He did not beat the fuck out. Well, of him. he he beat the fuck out of him at the end. He ran him into the turnbuckle. He hit a move. He hit another move. He hit another move, and he beat him. After having Samoa Joe having beaten the teetotal fuck out of him through the whole match, which did nothing. So that means that Darby Allen can kick the shit out of Wardlow in like fucking what two minutes? We'll see how much of Wardlow's power came from his hair. But, well, no, because he got beat and punked out before he got his hair cut. But we don't know how that will affect things going further. So now he's just, now he can't beat Sky Blue, Wardlow, you're saying, now without the hair. I don't know. This was ridiculous. What in the world happened here? What? I, 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 I'm not even saying don't put Darby Allen over in, your, in his goddamn hometown non-title match or somebody else. 
Why beat Samoa Joe when he's in the middle of this thing with Wardlow? To just have this match and beat him flat by a guy half the size. Samoa Joe could have been in the main event mix. I don't think anymore, actually. But the, the way they were pushing him and getting him over and letting him talk and do his shit, he could have been in the main event mix here. Now, he stopped at Darby Allen's level, and Darby Allen has a level. We've known that. And it is as Sting's little buddy and as the quirky, you know, underneath underdog baby face that fights up and has a chance against everybody but the top guys. But now that's been blown out of the water because now Samoa Joe has been subjugated to that level. And where the fuck this puts Wardlow, I have no idea. Again, to come back and get revenge on a corpse. Do you have a problem with the finish and Darby getting the belt if Wardlow was at ringside and cost Samoa Joe the match? No. Wouldn't have had a bit of a problem. Because that would have made sense. I would have had a I would have had a problem with Darby of uh, uh, fucking doing any goddamn major offensive moves after he had been rock bottomed by this giant Samoan beast on the goddamn steel stairs. They didn't have to do that. That's just Darby's goofiness and death wish and that's guys that are doing jobs or trying to get heat figuring well if he's stupid enough to take this bump i'll give it to him but no if if wardlow had been there some way to foil joe from cheating and allow darby to come and, and i'm not saying wardlow should have gone out and knocked him out the interfering baby face always comes out to make the odds equal or to right a wrong, not to give an unfair advantage. Heel goes to cheat a babyface, the second babyface runs down, prevents the cheating, and then the first babyface in the ring gets the win from behind or whatever. Now, sometimes if, you're, if your babyface in the ring is a job guy and you're trying to shoot an angle where the, the fucking top heel got beat by a nobody, then the interfering babyface does the damage. But when everybody's being used to some description, the interfering babyface comes down, takes away the foreign object, uh, nullifies the illegal advantage, restores the referee to the right place, just makes the playing field even, and the babyface in the match capitalizes on everything being even and surprising the heel who thought he was about to cheat or had an advantage. That's the way that works. Not that fucking hard to figure out. If the if second baby face comes down and interferes and goddamn just raw fucks the fucking heel, then that makes the baby face in the match look somewhat bad. And it's still acceptable to do that. If your baby face in your match is just really there as a bridge to get these other two guys involved, and especially if the heel has had heavy heat on the interfering baby face in the past. But it's much better for the heel to cover for the baby face to come down and just neutralize the advantage or right the wrong and let the resourceful young baby face pick up a a quick one, as they used to say. Is it being his hometown and having that moment and even having Sting there to hug him and be there with him? <laughs> Did Sting like, hug him? Because my DVR yeah, froze again. Sting came out and uh, came out and hugged him and 
celebrated okay, see, with him. My DVR froze, so I didn't get to see the hug. Does is what worth it? Does all of that make it worth it to do something like this with Darby in his hometown? Yes, but not this. Something like this, yes, but why this? Was there nobody? Are there no workhouses, no prisons? I sound like Scrooge now, but are there no other? It Was there nobody else that Darby Allen could get a nice win like that over besides Samoa Joe, who had so much potential, who'd been getting a coherent push for once, and who had just started establishing himself with the king of TV thing? The promos, it, all of a sudden he's getting promo time on TV. The promos, and, yeah. and now that, that, so that's a thing you run with for three months or so. And eventually, yes, he got the belt from Wardlow, didn't he? Right? So even if you yeah. didn't want to put it back on Wardlow, he would carry it while he's having this feud with Wardlow. And then whatever the fuck, like you said, Wardlow could cause him to lose it to somebody else. And that still doesn't end their issue but at the same time it's only been a few weeks so what the fuck if you nobody's gonna remember it it's not like the undefeated streak or the goddamn you know longest reign or, or the anything to, you need time with these things the king of television doesn't just be the king of tv for three weeks it's ridiculous so i don't know where any of these people are now well, that was AEW Dynamite. I thought it's relatively a good episode. I've enjoyed AEW Dynamite for the last several weeks more than I have in the last several months. I got a lot of problems with these people. Did you see the ratings? I did not. What are the ratings? I have not. I have no idea whatsoever. Where are we at? 864,000 viewers was the overall average. Quarter one. Jericho versus Starks, 1,037,000 viewers. Quarter two, the end of Jericho versus Starks, as well as the John Moxley cursing fest and Hangman Page. And Hangman Page, 919,000 viewers. Oh my God. That's a loss of 118,000 viewers. Quarter three. The Acclaim versus Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal, 896,000 viewers. Quarter four, the final quarter of the 8 o'clock hour. The end of the Acclaim versus Jarrett and Lethal, as well as the Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker backstage interview, and Brian Danielson versus Tony Nese, 832,000 viewers. Ouch! So, in the first hour, they lost 200,000. Quarter five. What a, top of the top of the nine o'clock hour, MJF and Danielson braying at each other. Did that bring anybody in? Nine o'clock hour, MJF and Danielson, eight hundred and sixty-five thousand viewers. Thirty-three thousand came over. Quarter six, which was Swerve Strickland versus AR Fox, as well as the backstage sit-down interview, Renee. What is her name at this point? I'm, I'm, about, to your, I'm about to do your stupid accent. Renee Moxley Good, or whatever her name is. Sitting down with Hikaru Shida, Saraya, and Tony Storm. 774,000 viewers. Jesus Christ! That's 91,000? All right. Quarter seven, which was the Guns funeral for the legacy of the memory of FTR, whatever that was. As well as Jade Cargill and Red Velvet versus Kiara Hogan and Sky Blue. A fun little match. 768,000 viewers. 
And finally, the main event quarter eight, Samoa Joe versus Darby Allen for the TNT title, 822,000 viewers. So people were actually, they just said at the end of MJF and Danielson, well, here, you know, the girls are up, whatever the fuck, we'll just leave and come back for the main event because at the top of the hour, that 865,000, they went down to 774 and 768 and then came back another as a 40, 50, 56,000 people came back to watch the main event. But that proves that people will come back for that. Is that the first time in a while they've had people actually come back for the main event? I think so. Certainly that many people, 54,000 people or whatever it is. It's a pretty good number there to come back. You know, I do want to say one thing, because I was recently talking with a friend of mine about this. My kids, let's look at my two oldest kids. One's in high school, one's in middle school. Neither one of them have asked for cable TV in their bedrooms. When they're down here in the great room or hanging out with us, they don't know what any of the channels are. They never request a show that's on a channel. They know what's on the streaming services. They know what's on TikTok promoting something. How the fuck can, can you even... Stacy gets these streaming channels and all these boxes with... There's no guide, a coherent guide. The boxes with the thumbnails just fly by. I can't find any fucking thing. I'd never watch that. My point being, we do have to start acknowledging, maybe more so than we have, not just us, but I think everyone, when evaluating these numbers, that one of the reasons why the demographics usually are higher you know, while Raw has an older audience, not the only reason, certainly not the only reason, but young people are not watching cable TV anymore. It's not a big deal to them. It's not something they yearn for. A kid rather have an iPad. They're not interested in having, you know, all the channels, all these packages, all the HBOs. They'll get HBO Max, but they don't know about all the different HBO channels and all these different things. So, when we're looking at these ratings, obviously there is a body that Nielsen relies on so that when you see a drop-off like this one from 1,037,000 to 822,000 at the end, it is reflective of an actual drop in that body's viewership of this show. The overall number, the people consuming an AEW or WWE, any kind of content like that that's that originates from a cable TV channel, you have to wonder what the audience really is because it's YouTube, it's shorts, it's little clips going around, but for a younger audience, they don't have cable, they're never going to have cable, and a lot of them don't even understand what cable is. Well, one of these days when they get educated, they'll have the the, the good stuff, but the good I see stuff. what you I see what your point is, but here's what I'm what I'm looking at is and we've always talked about Nielsen ratings or any kind of television ratings are estimates at best like the polls on anything and we've talked about the problems in the Nielsen figures especially locally more so than nationally. But nevertheless, if it's the same rating service and it's the same method of collecting the information and everybody is judged in the same fashion, then even if the numbers aren't right, 
the concept is right. Right. And as, as so I what I'm looking at as a person analyzing this program is regardless of how many people don't have cable anymore or are going to stream and do whatever the fuck and you can't tell what they're doing and all TV ratings are down, all TV shows don't start at a certain point and lose 25% of their audience by the time the thing's over with. And and we saw the overrun a few weeks ago. This program is is exactly the overrun. This program is not as popular or as well viewed as the rerun of an old sitcom that comes before it. And they can't even keep the people from the first hour to the second hour that tune into it on purpose interested in what's going on from the beginning of the show to the end because it's it's so inconsistent that's what i'm looking at regardless of who's watching most of the people that start watching this show don't stick with it how much of it's the booking how much of it's the lack of star power oh i i I would attribute something like they have stars they could have had stars by now they could have had more stars than they they do they could have made some they have some and they could have made more 80 20 yes yeah when you get to the network TV level and SmackDown, yes, you need the stars, you need Brock Lesnar, you need John Cena or whatever. But this, with the built-in audience that AEW has, the base audience that will watch anything that they produce as, as a cushion, they've had enough time they could have got some more people interested in a few of their fucking talents, and they would at least be keeping all the people that start watching till the finish. And it again. Yes, there's attrition on Raw. Raw's three hours, and it's the most boring thing I've ever seen. And they still don't lose 25% of their audience. And SmackDown doesn't come close to losing 25% of the audience till the end of it. So, I guess part of the question I have, and there's no answer to it, is if you're a younger wrestling fan, and you know that wrestling's on TV that night, maybe... You know, depending on how young you are, maybe your dad watches TV and you know he may be watching it. Is it worth staying up to the end to see Darby Allen if you're a big Darby Allen fan? Or if you know you can watch that match or at least the highlights of that match on YouTube the next day, will you just wait for that? And how effective is that versus actually watching the show on TV in terms of getting an engaged fan? Again, we don't have any answers here, but I'm just... Yeah, and well, and see, the 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 problem is the wrestling fan of all previous generations, not just mine, not just yours, all previous generations. You remember this? This was for fifty years. They watched every second of the wrestling program in their area, and they never missed a live match. Those were the real dedicated fans. That meant one hour of TV on a weekend. Two, if you lived in Houston or Atlanta or whatever, and a you know a, a ticket to ringside for your matches that week or that every two weeks or that month, and you know so it's not a generational thing about attention spans. It's just I don't think this is as interesting. It doesn't captivate people's attention because they don't believe it anymore they don't believe the people involved except for a few you can't get wrapped up in the 
in the booking and the personalities because AEW is mostly for people who like phony wrestling and WWE, they're as boring as fuck. So I think that's what we're just getting less fanatical engagement uh, from large numbers of people like we used to have because there's there's a lot more to keep track of than there used to be and less reason to keep track of it because it's less believable and less interesting. So I, I don't know. Well, that was but AEW this is Dynamite. your show. No, this is your show. Thankfully, that what? was AEW Dynamite. Well, in that case, what has happened with Vince McMahon since we've been recording this program? Are you on the internet? Is there any news? He's on the loose again. <laughs> Apparently right now people are hiding under their desks in Titan Towers. Wrestlers are texting Paul Levesque saying, where are you? Help me. Fear hey, if, if, has if, run If amok. you're in Titan Tower on the fourth floor and you need a place to hide, I recommend it's right down the hall from Vince's office, but the door that leads to the roof garden. Nobody will look up there. You know that wall in his office, the big red wall with the yes. dinosaur? Does anyone, T-Rex. Has, has anyone ever had the guts to tell him the truth? This is the ugliest fucking wall. No. They love the wall. No, it looks horrible. That's it, a horrible it's so red to have I didn't office. say it wasn't horrible. I said, no, they have not told him that. Yeah. They love the wall. Everyone hates it, Vince. It looks like shit. Welcome back. But uh, Vince has apparently not done anything this morning and and early afternoon since we've been taping this. But since our Vince McMahon update, breaking news update, which, by the way, as we mentioned at the top of the program here, you can see it on the or hear it on the YouTube channel and on the regular podcast feed. If you've somehow missed it, we updated this breaking news yesterday. But since then, we have found out that J.P. Morgan has been called in to, uh, well, what, you're the business brain there, Brian. What's the technical term? They're going to help review this company for potential sale. Is that what the, they do? That's one of the things they would do. I haven't seen the actual uh, statement or report or whatever came out today, but I believe from what I gather, J.P. Morgan has been brought on board to help facilitate a sale. And and we're not talking, they're not going to review the talent roster or the finishes for next week's Raw or whatever. Some banker is not going to come in and say, no, don't fuck him with the brass knucks. Use the goddamn spike. Uh, that's my next gonna, podcast. Oh, that's the brilliant idea. I'm going to get bankers to review AEW contracts. There you go. That's a there you show. go. That could be a series in and of itself. Um, <laughs> but they're going to look at the, at, the, at the bottom line of the thing. They're going to look at their expenses and their revenue, what costs what, how much money they make on things, how they attach some kind of value to the overall enterprise as well as different departments of it, I would believe. That's J.P. Morgan's specialty. So they're serious. This is, it's going to happen if the WWE apparently can make it happen. And also, as we mentioned at the top of the program, right after you said that on the breaking news, well, what about the Saudis? They spend 50 blue million dollars, as Aunt Lola would say, on every one of these big crown jewel shows. Why wouldn't they just spend stupid money? And I was saying that, well, would they do that at least out in the open? Wouldn't it get such bad publicity and ill will from the United States, at least, the fans here, that it would kill the company? Maybe they just take it over there to 
Riata or wherever the fuck, but you said, oh, I think there's something to it. And sportsillustrated.com reported shortly after that the Saudis may be interested, along with several other major corporations and conglomerates. Do we hear any more about that? Anything yet? The Saudis hate bad publicity. It's the Saudis! Uh, no other news about that. Obviously, different reports are flying around. People are now trying to peg different potential owners. Uh, I've seen different people uh, guess about different sports franchise owners possibly getting in. Obviously, there have even been people saying that Tony Khan could be a bidder for WWE. Oh, yeah, here. all right, yeah. Do you, do you think, in all seriousness, would old Shad actually let Tony spend five or six billion billion dollars that's a i think that's a a little pie in the sky there and and honestly when they're struggling to get tv deals right uh, uh, they got tbs and then or the tnt and then switched over to tbs they can't get ring of honor on television um they're trying to worry about their own deal they're going to buy the wwe and take it away from the two network affiliated Entities that already have programs on the air that might want to per I don't know. All right. Watch the but board anyway. watch the board produce a buyer and then watch Vince and his team produce a buyer, and that'll be the next battle. And then and then the bidding begins. Do I hear six billion? Do I hear six billion one hundred and forty seven million five hundred and sixty dot? That could take a while. And also they had an all hands on deck phone call or was it a live in-person meeting or could some of the employees call in or was everybody there? Did did we get the details on that? It wasn't for the wrestlers. It was for the WWE office employees. Right. And all the people in the uh, business hierarchy, they had a big meeting. I guess a lot of them were there probably in person, many more on the phone, but it was a rah-rah meeting apparently from what we're told. They said that there may be a sale, but there may not be a sale. Nothing's for sure, but that's why Vince is coming back to position us properly. We're all on the same page. We're moving forward. Bigger and better than ever. Love's in the air. Was that the gist of the meeting? That's right. Business as usual. Keep doing what you're doing. Nothing will change. Ignore that old man with the paralegal on his lap in the corner over there. Pay no attention (laughs) to the man underneath the paralegal. That's the thing. That's the thing. Remember that guy who did all that awful shit so we had to send him away? Well, he's back and he's in charge. (laughs) Here's the positive spin. Just keep doing your job and hope for the best. And things are going to be great. Uh, but again, things may be great because the stock is up or was up at close of Friday and because not because people think Vince is going to take the book back over, but because they think the company is finally, and now this is the sale. It's going to be sold and it's looking in that direction unless, and here's the, something you think Vince is going to be realistic and take a real offer. Or do you think he has an idea of what it's going to be? And if nobody offers that he's going to say fuck it we'll run it until they do does he have a number in his head that he wants it to be and will he accept something different if things fall into place that show that it's an unrealistic number remember years ago he got screwed negotiating tv rights for raw he thought it was going to be one thing and 
before you knew it, he didn't have too many options. Once you start this process, you start this process, he may not have as much control going forward as he thinks he will. Well, he's got the board on firmly on his side, even though he had to handpick them and in some cases actually give birth to them. Well, hold on now. He has his two people on the board. We don't know what's going on with him and Stephanie or him and Triple H or him and uh, Nick Khan. They were the two people that resigned, so those two seats still have to be filled. We, it's going to be a very interesting... Do they have to fill them? Is there enough? Is it like the Supreme Court? We got to have nine, or can they have as many as they want to have? The shareholders may demand they fill them. The shareholders still count uh, until the company goes private. Well, okay. Well, then, then they demand that they fill them, so then Vince finds, okay, uh, Bruce, you and uh, Laurenitis isn't here anymore. Um, Should ask Linda. Seriously. There you go. He can put any, he just did put two people on that he just did it. So he can put anybody on it he wants to. So if they need to fill the two, who's to say that he can't just say, okay, here's two more. Hey, Johnny Ace is looking for work. Well, that's why I just said Laurenitis nowhere around or elsewise he may have stuck him right back in there. You know, because Laurenitis fits in every little crack and cranny around there. I'm adding to the board Jerry McDivitt and this. Woman I met in the lobby. Jerry McDivitt. That's part, it, it, okay, Jerry McDivitt and Bruce Pritchard will be the next two added to the board. Oh, my God. And I think Vince has all the votes that he needs to have. Who changes his diaper? Hey, come on now. He's old. He, I'm telling ta- ta- Vince is never going to wear a diaper. He's just going to shit in his pants like the rest of us. All right, well, that's the, the Vince news, right? Until... Until Monday morning when we find out some other horrifying happenstance. Uh, your show is next in the uh, in the pecking order of things here. The drive-thru is coming up in a few days, correct? That is correct, unless you know something I don't know. Well, I've, I've, I do, but that doesn't impact this statement. Yes, the drive-thru will be coming up in a few... We'll update this on the drive-thru is what I'm trying to say, along with all the other latest news around the world of wrestling. And if anything Any big closing? happens, well, I was yeah, going to say, if anything we, we, big happens that can't wait an extra day, we will do breaking news audio. We do the breaking news. They, we've already established that, that we're willing to do the breaking news as quickly as the news breaks. So we got this thing wrapped up. 2023, we're going to be on top of this thing. We're going to be both fucking this dog and holding its head in 2023. We're going to take all the responsibility on ourselves. Right? Speak for yourself. Well, you can just, you can have the head and I'll take the other I do not even want to be in the building when this is happening. You could get some puppy kisses. All righty then. Anyway, for the first Jim Cornette experience of 2023, Vince is back, baby. Ten pounds heavier and ready to wage war. And we're going to cover it. We will talk to you then on the drive-thru and next week on the experience. Until then, thank you, fuck you, and bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo My mom 
Says I'm in the key demo. 